Hello, and welcome to Affable Chat. My name is Joey. Usually in Affable Chat, we dive deep, as deep as we can, into a topic of our choosing. Usually, we talk about movies, and today is not an exception. Today, we are talking about the movie Dune with our good friends uh, and guests, uh, Jay and Eli of the Super Bracket Bros podcast. Say hello. Hello. Good to be back on Affable Chat. Yeah, happy to, happy to be here. Thanks for being here, guys. Benjamin couldn't make it, so I brought you guys in to talk about the most anticipated movie the last two years, Dune. Our warriors couldn't free Arrakis from the Harkonnens. But one day, by Imperial decree, they were gone. Why did the Emperor choose this path? And who will our next oppressors be? This is an epic family sci-fi action adventure directed by Denis Villeneuve. And the cast includes Little Man and Little Women, Michi, Ilsa Faust, Aquaman, White Grape Thanos, Eric Selvig, Poe Dameron, Anton Chigurh, Pale Drax, Polka Dot Man, and Senator Pomalo. <laughs> Hope I said that one of those right. Um, I, watched this, <laughs> I watched this in theaters. And then I also watched it on HBO Max so I could get all my quotes and everything together. How did you watch this, Eli? I watched it on HBO Max. And what about you, Jay? I did the same as you. I watched it in theater, and then I came home, and I watched it on HBO Max <laughs> to get all my quotes and actually think about what I was going to say about this movie. So I, I've seen it twice. So, yeah. yeah. I've seen it twice, too. Five hours of, of movie-going experience. And I got to say, the theater is dead. Long live streaming. I had a terrible theater, theater experience. About, like, the movie's two hours and 35 minutes long. In the last 10 minutes, uh, it was, like, right in the sandstorm part where they're flying with that dragonfly ca copter. And the wing falls off. And immediately the screen goes black and the lights come up in the theater. Oh, no. <laughs> and we're all like, <laughs> what happened? Was, is this it? Is this the end? And we're like, this, there's no credits. There's nothing. And finally, someone's like, I'm going to go out there and find out if anyone's here to, like, fix this. He goes out there. He's like, uh, there's no one here. Oh, my God. <laughs> They're all gone. <laughs> no. <laughs> Eventually, it did come back on and then stop and then come back on again. And the lights turned off. So somebody was in the projection booth or something and eventually figured out that what was happening. Uh, but me and the other six people in the theater on a Monday night were very confused. <laughs> yeah, and no, before... that's uh, it's understandable. That's understandable. Yeah. <laughs> before the th the movie even started, there were two young women sitting a couple rows in front of me who were talking loudly during the trailers, and I directly confronted them and said, "Hey, will you please stop talking and don't talk to the movie?" And uh, it was very uncomfortable. But that's the kind of person I am. <laughs> I Good. don't like those kind of people that talk Good during movies. Good for you. <laughs> so I um, yeah, no, normalized confrontation, but also dust out going to the theater. <laughs> I mean, I'm sure we'll we'll talk about it. I mean, we could talk about it now. But I mean, I enjoyed this way more in the theater than I did watching it on watching it at home. Just I I do think that is how this movie is meant to meant to be consumed uh i you know i i think denyville knew i think he's right on this one he's wrong on other things but he's right on that one <laughs> <laughs> yeah i i generally agree with you and up into the point where 
the screen went black and the lights came up, I was totally engrossed. It was very, it was very uh, jarring to have that happen because I, I felt like I was so invested in what was happening on screen. Mm -hmm. um, but yeah, we'll, we'll talk about that more later in the episode. For now, let's start with our synopsis and I'll get us started. Dune is the story of Paul Atreides, heir to the House Atreides, one of the great houses that make up the intergalactic Imperium. Paul, his mother Jessica, and his father Duke Leto all live happily and successfully on their homeworld Caladan. Until one day, the Emperor decrees that House Atreides is to move to the desert planet Arrakis to be its steward. Arrakis was previously the fief of House Harkonnen, the richest house in the Imperium, and the Atreides' greatest enemy. The reason the Arconans were so rich is Arrakis's most valuable export, spice. Spice is a powerful hallucinogen, life-enriching, and space-traveling-enabling substance that can only be found on Arrakis. Paul is not just the very special son of a duke, he is also the very special son of a Bene Gesserit, an ancient order of women with mysterious power and an obsession with bloodlines. Paul's mother is a member of the Bene Gesserit, but betrayed the order by conceiving a son instead of a daughter. Paul is tested by the leader of the Bene Gesserit in an ancient ritual known as the Gam Jabbar. Basically, what that consists of is Paul puts his hand in a box and feels intense pain. If he removes his hand from the box, he dies. If he resists and accepts the pain, he proves he can control his impulses well enough to inherit his mother's power. During the test, the Bene Gesserit begin to suspect he is not just a very special boy, but the most special boy called the Gwizet Hadarak, a savior for humanity. By displacing the Atreides and the Harkonnens, the Emperor hopes to weaken both houses and turn them on each other. This happens quickly, with the Harkonnen spies attempting to kill Paul and eventually succeeding in capturing his father, Leto. Leto faces off against the Baron of House Harkonnen, and uses a false tooth to poison himself and his greatest enemy. Leto dies, but the Baron survives. Paul and his mother are taken to the desert to be left for dead, but they escaped and attempt to contact the native people of Arrakis, the Fremen. The Fremen live in the desert and wear special outfits called still suits that recycle their body's water. Also in the desert are monstrous sandworms, more than 400 meters in length, that travel beneath the surface of the sand. The worms are attracted to rhythmic noise, and even normal, normal footsteps will summon them. Paul, now directly exposed to the spice, begins to have vivid visions about the future. He and his mother evade Imperium capture and continue deeper into the desert seeking the Fremen. Eventually, Paul and Jessica stumble onto a group of Fremen also traversing the desert. In the group is a Fremen woman that Paul has been having visions about. The Fremen attempt to attack but Jessica gets the best of her leader, which threatens the balance of power in the group. Another member challenges Paul to a fight to the death for control of the group. Paul kills the man, and the Fremen accept him, bringing him to one of their hidden cities. And that's the end of part one. All right, let's get started with our pros and cons, and we'll start with our gracious guests. And Eli, you are first up. What did you like about Dune? So... I just want to come out and say this is one of the most technically impressive films I've ever seen. Like the acting, the set design, the costumes, the cinematography, all of it was top shelf and handled by a really like one of the masters, the contemporary masters of cinema in Denis Villeneuve. I think he arranges everything 
in such a professional and like it's one of those movies where you get the sense everybody on set knew what they were doing yeah and had someone to focus all their attention on it you know barring any emotional attachment to like characters or writing i think on a base form this movie is technically amazing I mean, the, just from the cast alone, right? You see the depth of talent that it's in this movie, and that's true in the crew as well. I mean, to have Hans Zimmer do the score and all these, you know, all those talented people make the the suits and everything. It's um, no, it's a truly a masterpiece uh, and a con- like a concert of yeah. talented people yeah, all together. It's, it's honestly the same vibe I got watching Parasite, where you see a master director accumulating yeah. all the best talent to make a a vision that everybody was on board with. And I felt that way watching, watching Dune. Um, the other thing I appreciated was, so I, I actually read the book in preparation for the movie. I'm not a lifelong Dune fan, but I really wanted to read the book because it is one of those tentpole science fiction, uh, speculative fiction uh, of books that really formulate like everything that's come afterwards. And so what I love about Denis Villeneuve's Dune is that he just he he got what Dune was about. He understood Frank Herbert's vision. It wasn't that he just thought there was cool stuff and he, you know, put the characters on the screen and gave them cool lines and made everything cool. He really understood what Frank Herbert was trying to do with Dune. He really I just felt like Denny Villeneuve understood Arrakis and that Herbert wanted Arrakis to feel alive. So this this is not just a great adaptation in that Oh, all the scenes from the book are done amazingly well. It's that the director understood what the author origin uh, wanted in the in the project and saw it through to the cinematic. So this transition of mediums, I thought, was amazing. Denis Villeneuve referred to the book as his Bible, right? He he had it in his hand throughout the entire process. Yeah, and watching yeah. the movie, you understand that. Yeah, absolutely, and I think that you can tell you know, the adoration that he had for it. And I think that you can tell that everybody on set had an adoration for it, not just being talented and being committed because, you know, someone could have came in and read the book and threw some quotes in there and some fanboys would have been happy. But to truly capture it, you know, was definitely a pretty monumental task and he did a fantastic job distilling that experience. I totally agree. And the last, uh, kind of in the same vein, my last pro that I want to mention, Dune as a book works because the world is so realized, right? There's a whole glossary in the back for you to help understand, not just, not just, (laughs) not just what's happening, but like the ecology of the world, the history of the world. Frank Herbert was almost like, like, like he, he was the, one of the great world builders, and I think, and, you know, gushing about Denny Villeneuve's adaptation, I thought he really captured Arrakis as a place. It wasn't just it, – it's the same thing with Peter Jackson and The Lord of the Rings. It's not just he found a, cool, a bunch of cool places in New Zealand and shot a bunch of fantasy <laughs> stuff there. He, it was like he, 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 used the, he used a bunch of set designs that really made the world of Dune, um, not just Arrakis, but also the, the universe with, you know, the Imperium and other planets. It, you know, it, it's it, – it's the same vein as like a game of thrones yeah and i think dune has that same level where people are just like frothing at the mouth i want to go to this world i want to spend time in it and i think denny Villeneuve accomplished that tremendously glowing praise amazing jay what about you so my first pro flows really naturally from eli's last pro is that i also compliment the world building 
the sense of place that this movie gave, you know, it made me feel like I was there, you know, like I felt thirsty when we were on Arrakis, you know, <laughs> like, you know, like I, I saw the, the desert and I was like, huh, like, uh, you know, I could, I could have really used a soda before I walked into the theater today. And so like, you know, there's just truly, you know, from the, the sweeping camera shots to just the, the lighting and, and everything, the cinematography was amazing and truly made me feel like I was there and, you know, not necessarily at home, you know, because like Arrakis is a terrifying place. I don't want to go there, <laughs> like Eli said, but, you know, it'd be nice to see it once for like a day and a half, you know, and then I'm, I'm going to go home. But yeah, regardless, it made, it made me feel like I was there. Like you want to talk about like the differences between the ships on Caledon and then going to Arrakis where they're rickety, barely put together, you know, it, despite being the most valuable planet in the entire system yet has this crappy equipment, you know, felt really, true to how things would actually be on an industrial planet in this universe and particularly this mouse is going to come up a lot but i'm going to be the first to mention how great this mouse is because it really exemplifies you know like the movie is a distillation of the book and that one moment when paul pokes his head out and you see the mouse and you see it how it survives really distills the entire movie into that one moment and so just the the world building how how big everything felt you know you really felt like you were going into this this planet not just a new city not just a new region but a new planet you know a totally different experience and so just that that was one of the biggest pros i had about this movie yeah i, I can't agree more it's amazing what else you got so one shout out that I absolutely had to give is the Harkonnens or Har- Harkonnens, however we would like to. arguing about it's <laughs> Harkonnen or Harkonnen. When I was <laughs> reading the book and when Eli was reading the book, we always referred to it as uh, Harkonnen. No, Harkonnen. Now I can't remember. Yeah. <laughs> if you can't even say, remember, then you don't have Harkonnen. a stake in this argument. <laughs> The Harkonnens, the Harkonnens, Dave Bautista, and Skarsgård, those guys, the bad guys, were awesome. I really, like, okay, I didn't enjoy them, but, like, I was terrified by them. Like, they they were truly terrifying, and I hated them every step of the way you know and and i thought it, it was great that it invoked that much emotion you know like of all the emotions i felt towards characters the strongest emotion was how much i hated dave bautista for the first time in my life you know like <laughs> this character like that i'm so used to loving and you know then evil new turned him into an asshole and it was great you know and so the the harkonnens were were great and it, like scars guard when he would float up and the the clicking sound that his device would make that lifts him up and moves him was so unsettling and the the harkonnens so the harkonnens the the character design the entire army design like i really love them as villains i want i want to say i totally agree with you jay and i think the atreides harkonnen feud is going to be the next like stark lannister you know (laughs) i think people are going to be taking sides and all that so um yeah (laughs) Well, one side's much better than the other, I would say. Hey, there are people out there who would be like, oh, yeah, I'm full Harkonnen. Let's go. Uh, yeah, Harkonnen to the bone. <laughs> see, don't lie. See, you, you know there's people like that. <laughs> I don't know. Skarsgård was pretty 
gross, man. Like, (laughs) you know, like Tyrion Lannister and, and, and the rest of the Lannisters, I mean, were at least like very attractive people across the board. (laughs) (laughs) Fair enough. Um, but yeah, no, I had, I had to give a shout out to the villains. They were fantastic. Just the, their actions, every, every step of the way, they surprised me with how much more brutal, you know, Gurney told me and I didn't believe him, but yeah. you know, like, you know, and, and Paul didn't either until he saw it. And so they, they really did a great job of that. And I wasn't sure if this was a real pro when I was figuring out what my pros were, but I do give this movie props for just making sense. Um, that was something <laughs> going in that I yeah. wasn't sure it was going to do um and it it put it all together and you know i i was wondering during the course of the movie and you know because I, I watched it with my partner Callie, and we, we went and watched and she hasn't read the book and so i asked her afterwards i was like could you you know follow everything and she said absolutely it was a fantastic movie and so like that kind of confirmed my feelings throughout you know that like i could te- i could understand you know what was happening and it wasn't just the context clues of the book filling it in for me and so that was something that i was really paying attention to and something that i thought about a lot before going into the movie you know because i was thinking about how are they going to fit everything in here you know to that you know to go to a to b all the way to z and they were able to skip very memorable scenes in my mind you know they were are very vivid from the book and still put it all together and still you know make uh you know uh, create this environment of arrakis in, in a really genuine way so yeah I, I i do give it props for just you know the the very basics of making sense of dune which is incredible <laughs> yeah no absolutely that's not an easy feat not even for you know someone as talented as denny valenov is um anything else you want to shout out in your pros so i mean we, we've mentioned it before last pro is just the acting was stellar everybody was so committed you know eli we've talked about it enough but that was my last pro is just the the acting itself was was technically fantastic just all the 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 little moments the facial expressions that i saw in all these characters you know like specifically and this is a a quote that will come up later but you know when uh paul is uh talking to duncan idaho like you you are gonna die and duncan like side eyes and is like oh like you, you know, and you can you can see that thought process just on his facial expression, and he's like, "Oh, you know, this is this is serious," and kind of spooks him a little bit, which is not something you see a lot from that character. I, I want to give my favorite performance of the movie. I want to give to Rebecca Ferguson as Lady Jessica. I thought she really just knocked it out of the park with just God. She just she's so good at crying. <laughs> <laughs> she is. No, she was awesome. Uh, Denis Villeneuve uh, described her as precise, which I thought was a really, really mm. like apt description. Something that's like she's so good at just hitting exactly the right note, um, because she's got to balance all these different elements of her like you know training and conditioning against her wanting to be a mother and her protection of Paul, and um, you know, and then eventually when after they go into the desert, she kind of her role sort of transforms from mother to you know kind of almost damsel in distress so it's it's uh it's crazy watching her transform and and embody all of that um throughout it's it was awesome yeah so i agree with all you guys pros all of those are, are great some other ones i want to shout out is just it was truly epic in the correct sense of the term it felt mm-hmm. like a big epic that's how dunes always felt to me and this movie matched that scale um the all the performances were amazing uh there was a proper attention given to the depth of the story like you guys said like they did they did it justice which i think is absolutely um 
absolutely amazing. Not easy, something easy to do, but it also wasn't afraid to be complicated either, right? It didn't dumb it down to the point where it's like, oh, this is just something we can we can understand. They were like, hey, let's make this, let's give this the proper respect and give our audience the proper respect to fill in the gaps, figure out what's going on, and we're not going to tell them every little thing. They'll have to kind of piece it together as they go along. And for something that's so grand like this, it's a pretty brave decision, but a necessary one in order for you to really capture the the um, the feeling of watching or reading this book. Uh, and I really love the creative choices, the things that weren't described explicitly in in the book. The way the shields looked was awesome, where they would glow red when they were penetrated was a really creative choice, made you let you know exactly when somebody was killed. Um, the <laughs> voice uh, was such an awesome sound design oh for God. that. that, that. Uh, one of, really, my favorite, really one of my favorite parts of the movie, every time the voice was used, like it yeah. sent my, my skin crawl. It oh my so gosh, it's amazing. <laughs> and then the sand walking, I've always imagined the sand walking in a specific way, and the way they capture it in the movie is really nice. It really gives you that feeling. Um, I, I really appreciated that. Um, yeah, all that stuff was awesome to see in the screen. So, okay, we've heaped a lot of praise in this movie. Let's talk about some of the things we didn't like. Um, and Jay, we'll start with you. Yeah, so... Again, to go off of uh, one of Eli's points that he really liked, Lady Jessica's portrayal and, and, and the performance. And I agree, the performance was pretty great, but I, and maybe this is, you know, from a frame of reference of the book, but I felt like Lady Jessica wasn't really a player here. Like, she wasn't really, she didn't have any agency. And, you know, it's an extra bummer because, you know, it, you have your lead female character I didn't really feel like she was impacting the story at all. Whereas in the book, you know, she was a political player just as much as the Duke was, you know, like she, the, the Bene Gesserit were much more fleshed out. And I, I don't know if understood is the, the, the right word, you know, looking back on the book, you know, it's hard to remember where I learned certain information, but I just felt like that Lady Jessica was this imposing figure um in in the book and i felt like that was kind of reduced in in the movie and i didn't care for that um but in in the grand scheme of things it's it doesn't kill the movie for me or anything but i didn't thought that was a bummer it's interesting you say that because that was one thing that Denis Villeneuve said he wanted to emphasize was like the female characters in the story because that's something that could easily be overshadowed um and so yeah i i mean i don't know I, I think that he didn't quite hit that mark either but it's also hard to judge this movie because you don't really see her come into her full force until she like becomes part of the fremen either um when she's True. with paul she's totally overshadowed and you're totally right that she doesn't get that um you know she doesn't get the agency that she would normally get but he eclipses her in power and political force and everything in every way um, which, you know, diminishes her star quite a bit, but that's necessary to raise him up. But with you only have two of the, those two characters, it's hard to balance that and show, you know, what's really going on here. And it just looks like, oh, you're giving more attention to the male lead, to the main character, than to one of your, you know, prominent female leads. It's an interesting story structure to have Paul's mother become, like, a main person in the story, sort of halfway through the story, right? At first mm -hmm. it's focusing more on Paul, but then it gets to her and him and their relationship and i don't know if this movie really fleshes out that relationship as well as it could have i think that's one of the differences in the book versus the movie is that you know the book is third person omniscient we get a lot of the thought processes of the yeah. characters and the lady jessica i totally agree with you jay she really signs she really shines in 
her thoughts. You know, uh, one scene that was cut from uh, the book uh, that didn't make it in the movie was a dinner scene with a lot of the Arrakis's um, higher ups, and that Lady Jessica signs in that scene of her just you know just analyzing and coming up with contingencies if you know we don't make an alliance with this character that's our backup you know they can help us get this resource like like i need to tell the duke all this if we're gonna have a chance here and it's just unfortunate in the movie where you just can't listen to like 10 minutes of inner monologue yeah (laughs) yeah yeah. no i i totally and that was the exact scene that i was thinking about from the book right it was that was that dinner scene and and there's a handful of others you know and i think about the moment where she's like like picking out a, a housekeeper right and you know i i felt like that scene could have been more and but in in retrospect you know yeah i'm thinking about it like that's all going on in her head right and you know she they do a decent job of like you know with the hand signals right that she's like aware of what's going on and she's the adeptness in which she handles it with the book and thinking about like the culture thinking about the fremen and pulling on all of that information and and going back to paul too like how much she taught paul and how much you know influence and how you know the two worlds of the Bene Gesserit and the Atreides clan, you know, sort of merge into Paul and how much influence both his parents have on him. Um, so, yeah, but again, a small thing. Um, but yeah, I would say another um, another one of my cons has to do with another more secondary character and Dr. Yue. Um, I felt like his he has such a vital role and pivotal role in the story in being the um, you know secret agent being the traitor but you know it, the reason for that and how he does that is sort of brushed under the table I think yeah and that was one thing that I actually I really would have liked to see as far as like story wise as far as like making sense wise and just the you know the, the sort of nature in which it was which was handled I, I didn't think was the cleanest but that was also me having more context from the book so well it does seem overly simple in the movie right they, they just infiltrated the house with one of their servants by capturing someone he loved and then you know you know blackmailing him essentially right and well mm-hmm. lying to him too but no there's a lot more to him and the like the way that he's infiltrated that is not explored at all which is a key theme throughout the book is his conditioning and his ability to act. So um, like taking that out again, probably a necessary a cut, but um, doesn't, doesn't, it robs you a little bit of the richness of the story. Yeah, I, I, I would agree. Um, and now surprise, we have my third secondary character I'm going to bring up as a con <laughs> um, and happens to be my favorite character in the movie and the book. I needed more Duncan Idaho in this movie. I needed more Jason Momoa. In fact, you know what? I I will I'll take a prequel. Uh, you know what? I'll I'll take actually a trilogy of prequels about. You know what? A trilogy of Sorry. prequels. Let me have a cinematic universe dedicated to the adventures of Duncan Idaho. Okay? I want Duncan Idaho side characters have their own movies. I want and him to show up and be the Iron Man figure. That's that's what I want. So, yeah. you know, if uh, if Denis Villeneuve can work on that, you know, I would say, you know, this movie would be, uh, you know, full 11 out of 10. Yeah. <laughs> uh, make sure he knows. <laughs> yeah. If you if you could pass that on, that would be yeah, great. Yeah. Um, but um, for my for my fourth con, which isn't a con, um, depending on the, uh, the, the outtakes of this that may or may not <laughs> exist in the world, I 
am a little bummed we didn't get a, a nice musical number from uh, Josh Brolin as uh, oh, Gurney Halleck. No, you got barely anything. He gets some poetry. He sings a little bit, but nah, he was that was such a big part of him was the song. So yeah, yeah, it, it, like actually though, you know, they did like kind of reduce the character just like they did all the characters, right? But yeah, like I. <laughs> Either get somebody that can sing or make Josh Brolin just do it already. Yeah. Just, just, you know, just, <laughs> just make, make him do it. Him do it. <laughs> All right. Uh, Eli, what about you? What did you not like about Dune? So I think my first con is kind of all of Jay's cons put together. Okay. And that's I really wanted another hour out of this movie. and And I don't mean that like, oh, I just wanted to live in this world a little bit longer. I really do think it needed, at the very least, an extra 30 to 40 minutes to have scenes involving all those side characters you mentioned, Jay. I would like the scene of showing Yue interacting with more of the family to show how trusted he is and how vital of a role he plays. I would have liked to see Lady Jessica do some political maneuvering, some advising with Leto. Um, You know, Duncan Idaho, that just just being you know duncan idaho <laughs> yes <laughs> maybe some training with paul or something and even just the tiniest scene of like gurney halak uh, the josh brolin character playing his baluster because they mention like oh gurney why don't you play play a song and then he does these little verses throughout the movie but you don't get the sense that he's this minstrel warrior like you do in the book yeah. there's just so much and and it's frustrating to me because I know the director's cut's going to come out and all this is going to be answered. <laughs> and it's just like, I don't know why. That they is did, why didn't they include it in the first? It's, it's, it's whatever. It's just this film really needed. If you're going to include all these side characters, give them more time to develop because they're, sure. they have interesting stories that, that in, you know, Dune is, isn't, no character lives on an island. Every character interacts with one another that interacts with another one. And it's all like a web of relationships that the movie... And I know Denny Villeneuve has these scenes. And I know the director's <laughs> cut's going to come out. Why would you give it to us? <laughs> exactly. I, I just... Yeah, I, I really think it needed just... I, I 30 to 40 minutes at the minimum, I would have liked another hour just to let the, let the film marinate. And I, the reason I want another hour... I. This is probably one of the fastest, briskest two two and a half hour movies I've ever seen. I don't know about you guys, but time flew by for this movie. It was well. It was, uh, yeah, go ahead. Well, I'll tell you that like watching it in the theater, I was trying to figure out how many hours have I been here, and I had no idea. I was like, <laughs> I could be an hour, or this movie could be about to be done. I I yeah. genuinely had no idea. My I've my actually... compass was broken. I was eventually checking my watch just because I was like, where is this going to end? Like, how is this, like, (laughs) where is this going to stop? I had, I had no idea. I was like, there's no way they're going to get through all of it. Like with this, I mean, obviously part one, but I didn't even know it was part one until I, I stepped into the theater and saw it. I thought they were going to actually try to finish it in in one movie. But then, you know, it's like also like, just go for it, you know, make it three hours long. And if people want to see it, they'll, they'll see it, you know? And yeah, like, well, I'm sure that's where Warner Brothers comes in and yeah. says, <laughs> "We're, you know, uh, we already 
people already think Dune and we have Denis Villeneuve is going to be this artsy fartsy, you know, thing that, you know, if we make it, you know, a three and a half hour film, no one's going to come see it, like even beyond COVID and beyond, you know, you know, the preference for streaming. So, yeah, I think that's definitely some some corporate, you know, hands reaching in there. But yeah, like I, I understand it from a financial perspective, but also I can't wait for that director's cut. <laughs> I know, right? <laughs> and I want to give I want to give uh, Villeneuve credit for making such a dense movie, such a brisk watch, because that means it was exciting. You know, we were engrossed yeah. the whole time. But just me personally, if I want my I want my epics, you know, this is an epic movie, and I for epics I want it to be not a slog, but a really just marinating experience. I just want. Like, when I say I want another hour in this movie, I want, like, 50 minutes of that hour to just be shots of the desert. <laughs> shots of people walking around. Shots, okay. of the sand, of the, shots, of the, shots of the, like, sandworm causing waves in the desert. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I wanted stuff like that because I think, you know, we feel so engrossed in the movie. I can't even fathom if, the, if, if Warner Brothers gave Villeneuve that time to just show, you know, Arrakis being Arrakis. Well, I'm sure that's what's going to happen for part two, right? You know, because I mean, I you think about you, yeah, I could get you yeah, you think of desert footage. <laughs> yeah, yeah, exactly. Yeah. <laughs> well, the, the the you know, just like Lord of the Rings, just like the MCU, you know, they didn't get to three hours until Return of the King. They didn't get to three hours until Infinity War and 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 the saga ended. So, a part two, yeah. if part one is successful. They'll give Denis Villeneuve that extra thirty minutes, and we'll see more from these characters. So, yeah, I, I'm I'm excited for you know uh, I'm excited for what's next. Yeah, and yeah, I think the success of Dune is gonna give. You're totally right. It's gonna give Villeneuve a little bit more leeway to be like the editor is like, you really want to include fifteen minutes of of people walking? It's like they're sand walking. Yes. <laughs> yeah. This is art. <laughs> uh, so the last con I'm gonna mention is going to coincide with my opinions of the book. I think this is a great adaptation because, strangely, I have the same opinion of the book as I do the movie. And that's... I just didn't feel emotionally attached to a lot of the characters. I was interested in what they were going through. And by, like, catalysts for the events on Arrakis, it was interesting. But there's no character... Dune just feels so large that the characters just feel so tiny, you know? And I know the book series deals with thousands and thousands of years in the future, so that even makes them even more like feel more insignificant. And watching the movie, I like like I think Paul and 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 Jessica and Duncan Idaho and all these characters are so interesting, but I know they're kind of just players in the grand scheme of things and that what their stories will end and I, the the world will move on. I think that's kind of the point of Dune, and that's something you just have to roll with. It just doesn't jive with me personally for what I like in my movies. I'm a very character-driven guy. I really love seeing, you know, people I like to be around and yeah. see them see them evolve. And none of these characters, I'm like, oh my god, I want to hang out with. I don't want to hang out with Paul. <laughs> <laughs> I really don't want to hang out with Jessica. <laughs> yeah, she'll uh, read my mind or make me do things. Um, yeah. Yeah, I, I know. I think that's the great balance you have to strike with something like this, like an epic like this, is you have these characters, you know, that you, that are central to the turning point of your entire epic, eons-long story. Um, but you also have to 
like balance that against like moments, right? Where you're like, okay, this is like this is a powerful moment between two characters, and this is what that means. I feel like there are some scenes that capture that. I feel like the Gamjabar scene uh, shows a lot from pa- from Paul. I think there are some quiet moments with Paul and Jessica that cement them together. Um, but yeah, I, I think that ultimately it's sort of the th- thing that's doomed to fail. With something that's this ambitious, you're never going to be able to get to the minuteness that you need for a normal story. And I, do- I just want to give a shout out though. There, the one character in the book and the movie I was really emotionally attached to was Duke Leto. Yeah, I, I, mm-hmm. I was really, I thought I, I just vibed with his character. It seemed like I, I was really interested. I mean, he had death flags waving at him at chapter one. <laughs> like it was so obvious, but I was fine with it. I, I don't know. I don't. I, it's just hard when like, especially for a character like Paul, who can see the future and kind of has a determinist life. You know, based on those visions, it's hard to really grasp that. But a character like Leto. Uh, you know, it's possible for in this in this grand universe to have characters like Leto that you really gravitate towards and attach yourselves. That you know, that's why I'm so mad every time I see the Harkonnens win. <laughs> I just, yes. I just want to. They're so uh, diabolical. I know it. Mm-hmm. It makes me mad <laughs> every time. So yeah, I think the characters in Dune are not my favorite characters, but I do appreciate them for they, they're very much in their own lane. I think. And they do it well. So I, res- I respect the characters. They're not personally my favorites. But for what Dune is, they're perfect, I think. That's well said. For for me, like, the thing that really stuck out to me was that there's barely any color in this movie. You get a little bit. There's like a little bits that highlight that really stick out, like the, the Fremen's eyes or the blood or anything like that. But mostly it's just grays and browns. And even when you have different, like three different armies fighting each other, they all look exactly the same. <laughs> um, it's just very like dusty and dark, and it's like that's obviously probably how it should be on a desert planet. But it also like doesn't, it's not very exciting to look at, and it ultimately kind of looks very flat to me. Um, it feels like the movie's not going anywhere because you know that it's just going to end, sort of without a climax, right? There is the whole, like, turn, the Harkonnens attack, House of Trades, but that's not the end of the movie. There's a whole other, like, act that happens while Paul and Jessica are in the desert. So it doesn't really feel like and it's building to anything yet, and that's kind of disappointing. Um, and all the awesome things in the movie, like, directly come from the book. You know, I, it can't, can't really compliment the movie without complimenting the book as well. Or, and I think we did this in our prose too. Like this movie did a, all the things in the book well, you know, it's like all <laughs> yeah. I had to do was meet that expectation, uh, yeah. which I feel like is, is not something I appreciate that much. Um, and the other thing is the world didn't really feel alive. Kind of like what you were saying, Eli, like how there wasn't like scenes of people walking around or sandworms in the desert or anything. When they look out over the city, you know, Duke Leto says, it's so quiet out here, you know, because there's nobody, there's nothing out there, right? It's just kind of a, landscape um and you get a little bit of uh you know world building with the fremen and everything but ultimately everything that happens happens around the characters we see there's nothing in the background to kind of deepen the story there's not like a scene where they're in a bar and you see a bunch of different interactions with people right um i'm thinking like how star wars fleshed out its world through its backgrounds right and made all this stuff real by giving you this world that felt lived in Dune certainly feels like a real world, but it doesn't feel like there's anything, anybody in it. Um, and part of the reason is because they're on a desert planet and they kind of have a poor setting for something <laughs> like that. But part of that is just that you don't really 
see the world functioning because it's all under the surface. One, one of my favorite little scenes is when Paul's walking around the palace and there's that guy whose job is to water those palm trees. Yes, that was a great mm-hmm. moment. Yeah, and I yeah. think that's kind of what you're alluding to is that seeing – the unimportant people, quote unquote, you know, the 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 day to day, you know, humdrum of the city. Maybe seeing, you know, Fremen skulking around the 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 mountains in the distance. You know, I yeah. was really interested in seeing Duncan Idaho hanging out with the Fremen, but that doesn't really evolve it anywhere. So no, I'm, I totally agree with you. Yeah, it's, it's interesting because we go on and we've we've gone on and on about how alive Arrakis feels, but you're totally right. It doesn't feel populated um, as yeah. as 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 something like other science fiction giants should okay so that's our pros and cons let's move on to our overall section so i ask you guys you guys already said this but i'm going to ask you more explicitly what is your experience with dune have you read the books have you seen any of the other movies uh i'll start with you eli so i am not familiar with the other movies I've only seen the batshit insane clips of the David <laughs> of the David Lynch film, and yeah. I was like, I heard, I just, I've always known Dune as just, oh, it's a mammoth in science fiction, but it's weird. <laughs> <laughs> oh yeah, totally. And so, and so, I, I, you know, the movie was you know, getting buzz uh, a few years ago, and I saw Dune on sale at a bookstore, and I was like, I'll give it a shot, and it took me like a year and a half to read that thing. Wow. <laughs> it wasn't I didn't dislike it. It was just so dense. You know what I mean? That's sort of my where, you know, my my experience with Dune begins and ends is with the book. Because like I said, I it didn't grab me. I know there's so many Dune heads out there. They've read the whole extended canon. They yeah. know they know all the terminology off the top of their heads. And just for whatever reason, I keep trying to drive, you know, my head into a wall trying to like the series and like those people, but I, I it's just difficult for me to do that. So that yeah, I, it's it's I, I I love and appreciate Dune for what it is. You know, it's just one of those things. that's not you know for me, if that makes sense. No, I totally get that. What about yeah, you, I mean, you you read like the first hundred pages, and then I read your copy of the book in between yeah, I gave it, that I year gave it and a half. You. I gave it to you because I was like, I can't read this. Like, <laughs> see if you can do better than me. Yeah, and then it sat forever here in my apartment, and I stared at it, and I was like, you're so. <laughs> like you know like it's so intimidating and yeah. then like i oh, i did the same thing like i got through the first hundred pages and i was like that was a slog you know it took me just as long to read the first hundred as it did the back 500 or 600 or whatever it is because once i got some terminology underneath my belt once i like you know like fully grasped you know what was going on and i, I you know there was like a sense of accomplishment in reading the book you know and suddenly like everything starts to click and you know you're privy to more conversations and you know to the 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 sleight of hand and the and the feints of of conversation happening between these characters and you know just it it made me it made me feel smart you know and you know (laughs) conquering the the book of dune and uh yeah no but that is my only experience as well is just the book you know i i have you know a a few youtube clips of the 84 version underneath my belt as well you know uh, because you know not to plug myself a little early we talked about paul on super bracket bros and so you know i wanted to see the character in action and you know the, the idea was we were going to see him in action in this movie uh, a year ago before we talked about him, but we had to go with the, with some different versions of him. Um, but the book is fantastic. I'm glad I read it. I'll never read it again. 
I um I listened to it on audiobook a long time ago, and that was really helpful to me because, like you guys said, those first hundred pages are so hard because you don't have any idea what's going on. Part of the beauty of Dune for me, and I think something that the movie captures pretty well, is it just throws you right into it. it doesn't explain what anything is. You just kind of have to figure it out. And as the story goes on, they explain more and more expedition comes through. You can go through the glossary and everything. Um, and there's a lot of context clues that you can pick up on that where you, you realize you don't really need that information right away. But the second time you read it, it's a lot more, it's a lot easier because you're like, oh, I understand everything that's happening. I already got through it. And I have the physical copy and read it uh, recently as well. I think it was probably last year in anticipation for the movie. I wanted to reread it. And I got so much more out of it. There was so much in there that stuck with me and so many memorable scenes in the in the book that really stuck with me. And I remembered it so vividly, even reading it a second time. And um, I still feel that way. I haven't read any of the other books. I absolutely intend to. Um, I also haven't seen the David Lynch movie, but I, I, don't, I don't think I need to at this point. I think I, I started watching it at one, uh, like a long time ago, and then I just quit because I was like, this is too much. I mean, I cannot understand or care enough about what's happening in this movie. It's too bizarre. Um, so, yeah, I, um, I was really excited for this movie to come out, and I'm really happy that it's finally out. Yeah, from what I can tell about the David Lynch version is it seemed like he just did the opposite of Denis Villeneuve. Like he's tried to stuff everything in this movie and then he yeah. grabbed all the scenes that Denis Villeneuve didn't. And <laughs> you know, it, I think those are the I think, ones. Yeah, exactly. You know, like David Lynch was like the dinner scene, the, the very first scene with the, with this, the space guys, the space guys are really important. You know, we need to know what they look like and we need to know how right. freaky they are. And you know, like, no, that's actually not important. Apparently <laughs> Denis Villeneuve has showed us the way. Yes. <laughs> Uh, so what does this movie what about this movie speaks to you personally if anything uh jay we'll start with you so i thought this question was interesting because i it didn't um touch, <laughs> re- really like you know touch me personally you know like i i it, it it did in a way but it wasn't like anything that i could relate to my life you know it's like you know like i, I watch star wars and you know i i feel the sense of heroism and i feel courageous you know and i feel inspired by by han solo and 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 luke skywalker and the heroes of of those films but like paul did not inspire anything in me or anything like that but i would say it you know as far as like how it did affect me is that it really reminded me of the moments in my life where i you know really get wrapped up in my own head and thinking about like the universe um and thinking about like how how small i really am and you know how much the universe doesn't care about me and you know today like you know i have come to terms with that and i find it actually you know it's a comforting part of my life and this movie reminded me of that is that you know like the the universe is so big and vast and you know arrakis does not care about Paul, like does not care about Lady Jessica, doesn't care about any of these characters. It's just doing its thing, being like, you know, just an inhospitable place. And, you know, you have to go with the flow to get along. And that's something that I felt, you know, at times during my life is like, you know, the the universe, you know, like trying to rail against it and rail against your surroundings and, and, and the people around you and the world around you, you know, doesn't necessarily lead to anything but but pain and so you know like learning to go with the universe learning to you know let go a little bit so 
you know, saying all that makes it sound like it was a very personal experience. But, you know, I, I would say, like, a, a, as far as, like, a, a universe goes, you know, it did affect me in that way. You know, it did remind me of that. It's a very existential story, for sure. And, you know, Paul is uniquely qualified to be the most important boy in the universe, but <laughs> none, of, none of us are. So I totally exactly. understand what you mean. <laughs> you know, the, in the grand scale of this story, it's a whole other universe, right? It's not just one world or anything. It's this whole other place. And um, even that makes your characters feel small in the grand scheme of t time and space. Uh, and yeah, I don't think that's an unrelatable experience at all. I often feel that way. Um, what about you, Eli? Uh, what is it about this movie speaks to you personally? So before I answer that question, I just want to say for, for Dune as a book, I may not have loved the process of reading it and, and engaging it with it. Yeah. What I do love about it is I can just tell Frank Herbert loves it. You know, mm. I do love media where I can tell the creator has such a passion and a drive and an excitement for what they are talking about. And so even though I don't, you know, and I'm not invested in the Dune mythos, I think I'm invested in Frank Herbert as just someone who loves this. And so uh, what Dune the movie makes me personally feel attached to is their understanding of Frank Herbert's love for Dune. Yeah. There's one scene in particular I want to highlight, and that's uh, Paul is in the desert with Jessica um, it's morning, they're getting out of their moisture tent, and you see a little mouse skipping around the dunes. And and Denny Villeneuve takes the time to show this mouse collect sweat from its ears and recycle that by drinking it. And it was such this tiny little scene that seems like it doesn't have any purpose, but I think for people who know what Dune is about, it means everything. It shows it shows the world in action, like kind of what Jay was talking about. This movie ostensibly is about Paul and his journey, but it's about Arrakis. And just this little, this little scene of this mouse shows that Denny Villeneuve understands that shows how this mouse can like survive, survive in the desert shows the ecology and how it's developed over time. Um, and so that, that's the, that was the point in Dune where I was like, Oh man, like I really love this movie. It's yeah. not just a fun romp you know a, a fun science fiction romp it's a, it's it's something that loves dune as much as frank herbert loves dune there's so, so many my... yeah there's so many little quiet moments in this movie you know where they take the time to do stuff like that that i think is like all the visions and everything all of that so art like it's not necessarily just artsy but it's like it has all this meaning to it using the language of film in such a beautiful way um and yeah that the little mouse second mouse reference <laughs> Uh, that's a, yeah. <laughs> I, I, I've seen so many memes of people like, you know, people who've read Dune seeing a mouse and they're all excited pointing at the screen, like clapping, <laughs> you know, know like, yeah, like, like ships are blowing up. They're just sitting there. Yeah, whatever. But a mouse, they're just like, oh, yeah, that guy gets it. Let's go. <laughs> that's awesome. Um, yeah, for me, like thinking about power and the way humanity should organize itself is a problem without a solution. Uh, but it maybe the greatest challenge our species has ever had to solve. Dune posits that through, although technology advances and humanity advances, our politics and struggle for power will never change. I like the exploration of the human mind in Dune and how important and interesting that feels in the book. 
there are these themes that I think have real weight and that, and that actually interests me personally, like politics and psychology. And I think Dune explores them in a completely unique and really compelling way. And I think that's really what speaks to me personally about this. Um, all right, let's move on to our something that the movie reminds you of. Uh, Eli, you have one right away. I do. Uh, one of my favorite movies of all time is Lawrence of Arabia. And I think it's unfair to Dune that I went in expecting science fiction Lawrence of Arabia. <laughs> <laughs> That's why I was disappointed without... Man, I wanted four hours of long shots of people walking across the desert. And then in that sense, I was disappointed. I, obviously, Denny Villeneuve had to have used Lawrence of Arabia as reference. I, I'd have to go back and find shot-by-shot comparisons to see if he is like grokking a lot of those scenes but it's so difficult to make an epic movie in the desert and not use that as sort of a template so you know with the wide shots of the desert you know you've seen that but also the wide shots of like the battles the wide shots of the city you know i see a lot of david lean um in a lot of those shots that villeneuve is doing and um and i think that's where my frustration <laughs> boils from is that in Lawrence of Arabia is such a character driven movie. Yeah. You know, there's a war going on, but the, the, the story is driven by character interactions. Um, and, and doing, you know, didn't have that level that I was hoping for. And so it, again, this is completely unfair <laughs> to Dune and Denny Villeneuve. <laughs> but man, I just really wanted science fiction Lawrence of Lawrence Arabia. Arabia. Lawrence Arabia with, with uh, still suits. Yeah, like, <laughs> come on. <laughs> Is that so much to ask for? Come on, everybody. <laughs> what about you, Jay? So I I think it's actually, you know, I, I had two pieces of the puzzle, and then we've talked about a third as we've gone because I have not seen I have not seen Lawrence of Arabia. Sorry. Um I, I I know, I know. I'm sorry, everybody. I'm getting faces of absolute astonishment and, and pure <laughs> hatred from my co-host. Set, set um, aside four hours of your day. <laughs> sure. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. I'll just, you know, just I'll casually. let my boss know and you know take the morning <laughs> off tomorrow and watch Lawrence of Arabia. I'm sure that'd be really good use of my time. Um but the the three that come to mind are you know star wars which we talked about we talked about game of thrones and i think the third piece was lord of the rings because lord of the rings you know is this is the epic you know it has the science fiction of star wars it has the politics of game of thrones but it's drawn out into this i mean just an epic fashion you know like these wide sweeping shots you know make you feel like you're in middle earth you feel like you're in arrakis you know like it truly is all three of those put into this really strange melting pot thrown in together and, and you get Dune. And, you know, I think it's, you know, takes a lot of the best parts of, of all of those franchises and uses them intelligently. But yeah, those, those three, I would say, you know, are, are names everyone knows, but, you know, Dune does a great job of, of, of taking the best of them. Yeah, I totally agree. I mean, I think that this movie holds a similar place in science fiction that Lord of the Rings does. It establishes a lot of the tropes that we still see today. Um, mm-hmm. We like there's interviews with George Lucas that tell that show that uh, uh, Star Wars was heavily influenced by Dune. Um, and there's a lot of things that they create that are still referenced all the time. My favorite connection that I like to draw is between Dune and the show, the expanse that's on Amazon. Um, it's, it's like also a space, sci-fi show with complicated politics and it's about class struggle 
Um, and the Martians in that story also fit a similar role to the Fremen where they want to transform, they want to terraform Mars and make it into some sort of paradise. And that's a common goal that unites the entire population of Mars, the same way that the population of the Fremen is united in trying to improve um, Arrakis. Um, yeah, I just think that everywhere you look, you'll in sci-fi, you'll find Dune influences. Um, it's played such a huge role in uh, the culture and through osmosis has had huge impacts all right let's go back to the to the movie itself so what was your favorite special effect moment if you had to pick one um and jay i'll start with you so this is kind of interesting because i i you know, wrote down and i was thinking about this and i actually kind of disagree with um one of joey's earlier cons where he said you know he felt like the movie was bland but you know i i really love the look of this movie you know i you know, despite the bleak, maybe it's just because I'm a pessimistic person. So the bleakness was like my vibe, you know, so so maybe that's the difference. But I just felt like that every shot in this movie could be a screensaver on, on a laptop or a, or a monitor somewhere. I truly did think that, you know, because you have the, the, the ship's rising out of the water on Caladan was one yeah. moment and you know that's really where you get Hans Zimmer reaching his hand in for the first time and going <laughs> and you know you, you feel it in, in your chest and you know so I, I love that and I would say I, I had to pick two particular scenes here I would say one one of the more subtle scenes is the hunter seeker um when the the hunter seeker comes in and s sneaks into Paul's room and you know uh, attempts to assassinate him while he's and watching the hologram of the mouse. Exactly, while he's watching <laughs> oh the hologram of the mouse. <laughs> he's just blowing Mark it up on joy. the board, tally number three. <laughs> I think that's one for each of us I now. So we'll noise. I there. don't have any dinging noise in my soundboard. <laughs> Welcome to the mouse, the mouse cast. <laughs> but I, I, I love that scene because, you know, as he's standing in the hologram, you know, amongst the, the foliage of, of Dune, you know, that's being portrayed in front of him. And, you know, you have the color going across Paul's face and, him eyeballing the hunter seeker and as it approaches him right next to his eye you know i just felt the the, the tenseness of the scene you know it was very you know very small uh effect that i really liked in the movie and then the other one's the complete opposite it it's you know kind of goes in with my my last point about you know arrakis making me feel small and this universe making me feel small and it was the moment where we i think it's the first time that we really see the worm and yeah. as it swallows the refinery, you know, like, because you, you, you saw Paul in the flyer going down, sitting next to the refinery, and the refinery is the size of a, of a three-story, one-block building. And then you see the worm make it look like a toy car, and it's like... <laughs> oh you know your sense of scale just you know go goes goes off oh, yeah. and so yeah i i loved both of those for very different reasons the um i mean the worm itself like it's so hard to get a sense of scale in the book and just how big it is they tell you how big it is but it's so hard to understand and see that's like a that's a huge cinematic moment for me it was something i love to see in theater and i love like when you see a dune movie you want to see the worms. You want to see them do worm things, and them eating that thing is so amazing. Uh, the sand coming in, you know, like falling into its giant maw. It's just so big. It's coming out to eat this thing. Amazing. Yeah, the the reverberations of the sand, you know, as they go deeper and deeper, and yeah. you know, uh, yeah, this the the 
the horror on Gurney's face as like he's like shifting down. It's like I I felt yeah. that. I was like, you know, oh man. The sand turns to like liquid. They like sink into it. Oh, it's so mm-hmm. cool. I love that. What about you, Eli? So my favorite scene, uh well, I should say my favorite special effect is actually my favorite scene. And okay. it involves the sandworm, um, in the most intimate <laughs> way possible. It's the scene um uh, uh Paul and Jessica are running away from the worm. They get to safety on like a rock, um, but Paul trips and he looks out, and the worm is just standing over him, and its mouth is just right on Paul. And for the briefest second, the mouth looks like an eye. Yeah. And it was one of those, I, they're like those special cinematic moments where all thought leaves your brain. And you just watch something that's beyond description besides being cool. <laughs> like, yeah. like, it, like it was awesome. But like in the biblical sense, I was just, my mouth was like, uh, like open eyes wide. Like this is just so cool. Like this is filmmaking. <laughs> like as, as pretentious as that sounds, you know, because there's so much to grok from, you know, it's the whole like, you know, staring into the abyss, the abyss stares back at you. You know, it's it's the eye of Arrakis looking down at Paul, seeing that you are not, you do not own me. Like I am, I am Arrakis. I am, yeah. I am here. I, I I could I could literally talk about this scene in that last like ten seconds for like an hour. It's just it's just it's so cool. It's 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 one of those things that reminds me why I love movies that it can conjure up such special, magical experiences like that. Yeah, I, I completely agree with you. That was a powerful scene. Um, and I love the eye metaphor, too. Yeah, I, I will say about that particular scene, I, I loved it as well. I hated that I knew it was coming based on me watching the trailer. <laughs> no. I, oh my I, God. I, I wanted, like, I as soon as I saw the worm in the trailer, I was bummed out because I was like, I'm not going to see this for the first time in the theater. And so, like... The, the moment like that that's just me being jaded about marketing you know <laughs> so it doesn't really take away from the moment but you know for me like that was in the back of my brain but it was still fantastic but yeah, yeah I, I had to i had to give that a shout at least it was in the movie right don't you hate it when a trailer has a deleted scene true <laughs> yeah absolutely yeah nice I, I, I guess you know yeah i'm glad you know there wasn't a a quick moment of of jessica to, at a dinner table you know politicking the heck out of a heck out yeah. of Arrakis politics and the, that that got cut <laughs> for me this is it's kind of a it's not really a special effect it's more of an editing thing but the visions stood out to me as really well done they were so disorienting and you only got flashes of them slowly got more and more as the movie went on and paul becomes more and more attuned to the spice um and they weren't really playing it safe right they, they weren't really spelling it out for you they're kind of just giving you flashes and you had to figure out where they were and what they meant and who the people were in them and so when you finally see chani um in the flesh you know there's a real resolution to that um uh, because you see her basically from the very beginning of the movie but never understand exactly who she is or why she's important um and you know there's kind of hints that maybe this is the future maybe he's seeing parts of what's going to happen like he hints at uh for uh duncan idaho but he never really um you never really get a clear explanation of what's going on and i'm sure later in the movie or later in the series they'll explore this more um but for me in this moment where they're just kind of introducing this idea slowly gradually bringing it more and more into focus uh was really really well done and i something that really immersed me in the movie more and more uh, what was your opinion on i'm not gonna say like 
I'm trying to think of the right word. Would you want more shots of Zendaya walking in the desert looking over her shoulder? Or... You're telling me, earlier you told me that's something you wanted, was more shots of the desert. And yeah, I'm not going to complain about that. And also it's Zendaya, and I'm not going to complain about that. But at some point, it was like, oh, vision of the future. Yeah. Here comes Zendaya. I, yeah. I, 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 it, it also was kind of funny to me. It's just that Zendaya probably got the easiest paycheck to be a top billing of a movie <laughs> like, right just to like wander around this chris night without saying anything yeah no i think i, 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 I think joked that up. was it was interesting i i like that they didn't really show her face for a little while right she's kind of just hidden with her blue eyes kind of popping out and then like the holy war scene where she's like oh, smiling yeah. with the bloody knife and he looks over the hill and they're all fighting each other it was awesome i mean that was like a it's a really powerful moment and you can see her like influence in that and like She's playing a part in that, but you're not really sure what role it is. Later, she stabs him in one of the visions, right, when yep. they're about to kiss. It, she, she represents this kind of allure, but also, like, danger. Um, and I think that that's all really interesting. I don't know if I need more of it. I think that I got exactly the, the right amount. <laughs> <laughs> I joked about with a friend that the extended edition is just going to be Zendaya. It's just going to be that. More. Just more Zendaya <laughs> staring out her shoulder. <laughs> Every and time they need a hour. transition between scenes, they just put yeah. that in. <laughs> All right. Um, so, what? How do you guys feel about Paul Atreides as a, as a character in this movie? I put this in here because you guys featured him in Super Bracket Bros. And by the way, I'm never going to forgive you for knocking him out in the first round. Uh, that's something I'm going to hold over you forever. Uh, that's something a mistake, I, I believe. But you know, I wasn't there to defend it. So I, I will. I'll let it go. I guess. But uh, Eli, how did you feel? I thought Paul was perfect for this movie. I, I think the three of us haven't given him a ton of love in this podcast. But I think he serves the Dune mythos pretty – as well as any protagonist can, I think. He, he kind of fits that mold of, like, fantasy protagonist chosen one. But there's enough of, like, the nihilism behind it to give it a different – give it a different vibe. And so I thought – and I think Timothy Chalamet really channeled sort of Paul's – I mean, he's got a lot of stuff he's working through, not yeah. just the <laughs> – not just the visions, but like yeah. the he's very of... angsty. He's probably yeah. the most angsty teenager of all time. And like, I, mean, I give him credit <laughs> for being angsty. Anybody deserves to be angsty. It's Paul. But you know, I, I think, I think, I think the character of Paul is is fascinating and perfect for the Dune universe because he he he's this perfect line between fantasy chosen one hero, but also subjugated to this hopeless universe. <laughs> I yeah. think. What about you, Jay? Yeah. So. I, I guess I, I do I do agree with Eli. I think that he serves Dune really well. But I mean I don't I didn't personally love Paul. Um, you know, he's just sort of this like chaotic, deterministic energy that I I don't particularly like personally vibe with, but I you know, he, he doesn't inspire me, you know, or, or or affect me emotionally, but it's just sort of like this this force, you know, that, you know, he's just like constantly getting tossed from one absolutely insane experience to another. And, you know, we he, you know, is growing, you know, at, at the beginning, we see him as sort of this, you know, petulant, almost, you know, not, not quite, but, you know, he is 
sort of like, oh, you know, why, why do we have to go through the formalities of this? Like, and he's like, oh, do I really have to practice? It's early, mom, you know? And so, <laughs> you know, like there, there's some of that. And, you know, I mean, that's like not the Paul that we have even by the end of this movie, you know, he's already changed so much. Um, so I, I, I don't love Paul, but I do think that he serves Dune really well. I think Eli said that really well. Um, so, yeah. Um, and, and also... Paul deserves to lose to lose to Sir Night Eye. I'm just okay. you know, saying. <laughs> um, yeah, I, it's interesting because he he plays this role in the story of being that deterministic hero, right? All the all of fate sort of is colliding with him, and he's a turning point. But ultimately, he does have his own agency and has to sort of go his own way and resist like the calls that are are put to him. It's interesting that they highlight that one scene with him and his father in the graveyard of his ancestors, right? And his father says, I didn't want to be the like the Duke either, but eventually I found my way to it, sort of fulfilling a de destiny through his own route. And he was sort of hinting that Paul would do the same thing. And I think ultimately throughout the story, that's like his greatest struggle is trying to resist his eventual destiny, but ultimately falling prey to it. And, um, you know, even though he can see his own path, there's nothing really he can do to change it. And going along for that ride and slowly realizing you're losing your agency, I think is something really compelling and powerful. Um, but I, but you don't really get a lot of that in this movie. What you get instead is just he's there trying to make the best of a bad situation and ultimately capitalizing on a lot of the power that he's found himself with. And um, it's going to be interesting seeing how that develops as this movies create and stuff. But I do like the arc he goes through, even though, again, it's not very complete. So Yeah, no, I think it's interesting to see him be the focal point of these two different sides of the universe. You have the very, you know, the, the, the properness and the manipulation of the Bene Gesserit. And Paul has a little bit of that in him. Like, he probably would not like to admit it, but, you know, like, he knows how to, how to maneuver social situations, you know, and, you know, he picks up cues and is incredibly intelligent in that way. I mean, you know, you look at Duncan Idaho's last moment where he brings the, the sword to his face and then his chest, and then, you know, Paul does the same thing in a, in a ceremonial fight, showing everybody that he belongs. Yeah. And, you know, like, the, the small things like that I do appreciate Paul, about Paul's character and and also taking it back to the technical side, like I think Timothy Chalamet does a great job. You know, I think that he did everything that he could, you know, with with this. And I think that you know his his moments of of pure terror really showed through. And the you know uh, the wondering and and you know the the wonder with the world. I think Timothy Chalamet did a great job expressing that as well. He's also like he's constantly expressing two emotions at once, fear and like a presence, right? He's also mm -hmm. like trying to reconcile like shocking news with also remaining stoic. You know, he's always trying to like uh, push down his other emotions, control himself, control his impulses. And you can see it in his face that the how controlled he is, but he still but you know, that's the skill of a great actor is being able to let that little bit leak through to show like if you're really paying attention that he really is scared, but he's not he's choosing not to express that. It's pretty amazing. Let's talk about adaptations. We'll we'll go through this kind of briefly. Um so I wanna know if this, this movie could be adapted, really. I think we kind of come to the conclusion that it was adapted well, but in the past it's not been adapted well. 
Um, and I actually have a quote from the Vancouver Island Free Daily um, that I want to read for you guys. Filmmakers have long been drawn to Dune, dreaming of turning Herbert's action-packed yet philosophical novel into a more serious-minded, grown-up answer to Star Wars. Believing Star Wars had borrowed heavily from his work, if not plagiarized it, Herbert once dismissed George Lucas's film as a comic book for the screen. <laughs> yeah, I don't know if that's an insult or not, but whatever. <laughs> but the, the very same elements of Herbert's novel that have entranced Hollywood, the vast scale, the heady themes of imperialism, religion, power, and ecology, the most imaginative world-building this side of The Lord of the Rings, have also been the ones that have stymied efforts to adapt it for the screen. Director David Lynch's 1984 Dune was a troubled, critically lambasted production that bombed at the box office and has been disavowed by Lynch himself. An earlier effort to adapt the book by cult filmmaker Alejandro Jorduaski fizzled after years of development and millions of dollars in pre-production costs, a doomed endeavor chronicled in the 2013 documentary Jorduaski's Dune. So what do you guys feel? How do you guys feel about that? Any thoughts on that, uh, on the difficulty to adapt Dune? Yeah, so I mentioned this earlier, talking about what I loved about Denny Villeneuve's version, is that he understood what the core of Dune was about. Um, not yeah. just not just adapting the scenes from the book, not just co- taking all the cool bits and making cinematic, but really understanding what Herbert wanted to do with that book. And I think, it, I, it's my belief, I think you can adapt any story. Uh, into a movie i think there's a cinematic language for anything no matter how crazy the book is the right mind can make it happen if they understand the purpose of the book and so i think villeneuve understood that whereas david lynch and hordorowski were in their own kind of like uh, both of them are so weird like (laughs) i I think i think they were all about like the frank herbert's acid trips and stuff and not necessarily about the ecological and philosophical (laughs) interests that yeah, that's so book. interesting you say that because I think that like Denny Villeneuve has this unique style. This feels very much like Arrival, right, or Sicario, where it has that kind of slow pace. But it also feels like Dune, right? Mm-hmm. Whereas you, you can imagine a David Lynch film is always going to feel like a David Lynch film, even if it's an adaptation of something else. And trying to reconcile, it's like you know trying to put two giant things in the same thing, right? It's like. I, would, I don't know, trying to mix peanut butter and rocks. Like, they don't go together, you know? <laughs> well, I wanna, they're, not, I bring, they're not compatible. I what a wordsmith, our... Joey. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> well, I want to bring up another uh, Timothy Chalamet adaptation I think did really well, and that's Little Women. Yeah. Uh, I think Greta Gerwig did a great job of understanding the core of what Little Women's about and communicating it cinematically because it's not told the same way as the book is Mm. she does her own spin of it and Denny Villeneuve takes his own cinematic spin on it while understanding the core of what Dune is so to answer your question yeah I think the story can be adapted and I think Denny Villeneuve passed it with flying colors what about you Jay yeah no I would agree and I think in particular like he does a really good job he does a really good job in just the first minute of the film like spending that first minute or so with Arrakis with Chani and her voiceover kind of explaining what's happening on Arrakis, you know, the actual timeline of things, you know, and, and in the book, you know, like you're like we've mentioned multiple times now, you're just tossed in and, you know, you got to swim yourself out of the deep end sort of. And so, you know, giving that just a, a, a little bit of extra context, I think helps the transition from 
you know, Kaladin to Arrakis a lot. And I think it's just all of those small decisions that Velnu does really well and does in his style does really well. And and personally, I didn't like Blade Runner 2049, um, but I, I don't have a lot of love for the original movie either. And so... so I feel like, the same way. Yeah. <laughs> and, and so, like, I know Eli's shaking his <laughs> head at me again. <laughs> I'm not going to watch Lawrence of Arabia and Blade Runner 2049 again. Okay. <laughs> uh, this is the end of Super Bracket Bros as we know it. Fun. <laughs> we're, we're so close <laughs> to the finale season three. Sorry, man, I got to bail. <laughs> but, and, but I think that Denis Villeneuve fits Dune. And I think that a lot of directors would force their own way. But I think that we're sort of getting to the point I think Denis Villeneuve got to the point in his career where he can go out and seek that, right? He can go out and get it. And it, it's almost like typecasting a director, right? Yeah. You know, like I, I think that he was just the, the perfect guy for this particular job, you know, and I, I think he I think he crushed it. Yeah, I, I agree. I mean, I think of him now as like the, the great adapter at this point, right? He <laughs> adapted Ted Chiang's uh, short story, Stories Your Life, Story of Your Life uh, for to make a rival. He adapted or kind of built upon Ridley Scott's Blade Runner to make Blade Runner 2049, which uh, people love that movie, even though I'm not really a fan. And then Dune, I'm curious to see what the critical reception will be once the kind of, you know, the dust settles, pun intended. But I don't know what... Um, but I think, in general, I feel very positively about this movie, and I feel very positively about the way he adapted it, and um, I hope to see more of that um, from him, so... The great adapter, Denis Villeneuve, uh, in my opinion. Um, so Heard speaking it. of the of the next one, are you guys excited for the, uh, part two? Um, we'll start with you, Eli. Yeah, absolutely. I think he knocked it out of the park, and I will be more excited for part two when I see the director's cut and includes all the scenes I wanted in the first movie. <laughs> <laughs> I see. So just wait for the director's cut and the director's cut for part two, and then you'll have the full, yeah. the full experience. No, 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 now that I have a vision of... Now that I have visuals of what Denny Villeneuve's vision is, that I'm I'm more than excited for it. Yeah, what about you, Jeff? Yeah, I'm also very excited for it. Yeah, and I, I, if the runtime's under three hours, I'm not going though. <laughs> I, I want to get I want to wow. get everything in on this movie. Um, but no, I I'm I'm super excited for part two. Part one was fantastic in uh, so many different ways, but I I and I think two is just going to build off of that. And you know I it's it got me the closest to reading Dune again, and maybe part two will get me all the way there. You know, will make me want to dive back in. But yeah, no, I'm I'm excited to uh, I'm excited for more Dune. Absolutely. Um, I got one more thing I want to touch on, uh, and that's something, it's kind of an elephant in the room for Dune, and that's the white savior trope. So I, there's criticism of Dune as being a white savior story. This is, I don't know if you guys are familiar or not, I think you probably are. Most people yep. who've you know, been in media kind of understand this trope. It's an old racist trope where a white person enters a foreign culture and eventually leads them to overthrow their oppressors. The roots of this trope are pretty deep and old. Um, some modern examples are Dances with Wolves, The Last Samurai, and Avatar. Um, and the question is, is Dune part of this tradition? 
I watched an interesting video from this guy named Quinn's Ideas on YouTube that addressed this directly. He's a big Dune head, and he claims that Dune is not a white savior story, and I think his argument is pretty compelling. So in order to explain it, I sort of have to spoil a couple things, but I'll be vague so no one's put off. At the end of the movie, Paul and his mother have been accepted as refugees into the Fremen. House Atreides has fallen, and Paul has nothing. He's a king with no kingdom. But throughout the second half of the novel, he gains power and eventually achieves everything he ever wanted. He gets revenge on the Harkonnens. He makes a play for the Imperial throne. He has a powerful army at his bidding with the Fremen, and the spice has unlocked incredible physical power for him. But technically... The Fremen, are, the Fremen themselves are no closer to achieving their goals. They want to turn Arrakis into a paradise, a sort of oasis planet instead of a desert planet. The Imperium has no desire to do this because spice is so valuable. But Paul, being aligned with the Fremen, could make this happen for them. He even says, once I am emperor, or if I am emperor, uh, I could you know, transform this planet with a wave of my hand. That's something he says in the movie. At the end of the first novel, they seem poised to achieve this, but only if Paul makes it happen. I haven't read the other stories, but from what I've gathered, things don't turn out so well for the Fremen. Although they have a powerful ally that they have elevated to the throne, Paul does not really return the favor. So in a way, Frank Herbert's original vision of the series is fulfilled, which is to serve as a warning against charismatic leaders like Paul Atreides. It kind of puts a dark twist on the story, but that context is already being established in this movie. Uh, one of the easiest examples is the intro quote that I played where Shawnee says, who are next oppressors be? Um, which I think makes perfect sense. And then, you know, there's a couple, there's a scene where uh, Paul and his dad are talking in uh, the kind of the garden, the ancestor garden. They say if we hold firm and tap the true power of Arrakis, we could be stronger than ever. What does that mean? Mining spice, keeping the Fremen in their place? We'd be no better than Harkonnens. No by making an alliance with the Fremen. And he goes on to describe desert power, which is one of the most powerful scenes in the book and the movie. It's something that always stuck out to me, desert power. But this is interesting because he's saying we can use the Fremen, right? And in fact, he, uh, Paul says this at the end of the movie too. The emperor sent us to this place. And my father came, not for spice, not for the riches, for the strength of your people. I mean, this is a compliment, right? It's like, oh, you guys are so strong. We were traveling across the world, across the universe to, to get to you. But it's sort of admitting that he's using them too, right? We came here for you guys to help us, not for us to help you. And um, although they try to make, you know, a treaty with them, they say, oh, you know, we'll do whatever you want and we won't cost you anything. The one... Um, requests that the Fremen leader Stelgard asked of them, they don't grant, which is to not go into the desert unless they need to, right? Unless they're mining spice. So it's, it's interesting that they have this relationship already established where Paul is setting up to become leader of the Fremen and then betray them for his own purposes once he has what he needs. And in that way, it subverts that white savior trope um, pretty effectively. What do you guys think? I guess it depends on what part two is, right? You know, yeah. I think, you know, we, we've mentioned several times that this story isn't finished. And so I think that will really determine. I think for now, 
yeah, it's sort of leaning that way. And, you know, our notion, you know, and the, the mass populace, you know, notions of how stories go is that Paul is our hero. He will eventually become the emperor. He will eventually rule the universe, right? You know, he, he has stated his goal as such, and thus, you know, he will realize it. And he does that in, in the novels, you know, again, from my understanding of reading many summaries of the later <laughs> books, you know, because that's not happening. I'm sorry. You know, I, I you know, just have other things to do with my life. Um, but, you know, I, I, I'm tapped into it a little bit. And yeah, you know, the Fremen sort of get, get left behind. And, you know, I, I don't think that we're going to get five parts to this Dune series where we see a 30-year-old Timothy Chalamet become, you know, the emperor. And, you know, I just don't think that's, that's realistic. And, you know, I don't think we're going to get there. But, Maybe we could see something that subverts that in part two, you know, where Paul, you know, we see more of that hunger, that thirst, you know, because, you know, he saw, you know, it, in one of his many visions that we complimented, you know, that it, this this great wave overtaking of fanaticism, taking over the universe, him leading the Fremen on multiple different planets on a campaign to take over, take over the universe and you know and maybe that gets subverted because we've already seen visions that are subverted where he is stabbed by chani and that doesn't happen in this movie but maybe you know it it could potentially still happen happen. you know i guess you know (laughs) you know i'm I'm realizing this as i'm talking you know is so yeah no i think um i think there's certainly potential to still you know paint paul as not the the white savior or a savior period um but uh yeah so i i i'll hold judgment you know obviously we're you know three white dudes on a podcast talking about a movie you know maybe we aren't the best judges but from where i'm sitting right now that's that's what i believe but i'd be you know more than happy to be corrected on that what about you eli any thoughts on this well, I just prattled on how one of my favorite movies is Lawrence of Arabia, which is one of the biggest white savior movies <laughs> of all time. And so, <laughs> dug yourself into that, that hole oh, already. No. <laughs> I, it's one of those things. It's hard because I do love Lawrence of Arabia, and I can't deny the white savior trope as being very prevalent in that movie. You know, all all the Arab tribes are you know fumbling around until this this blue blue uh blue eyed blue haired blue haired anime eyed. protagonist yeah. <laughs> <laughs> the blue eyed uh, blonde haired just perfect you know specimen of like the aryan form coming and getting them all together and getting their shit together yeah um and i think that has the groundwork in dune to follow that but i think that quinn's ideas on youtube brought up an interesting point where the white savior trope becomes subverted when the the quote-unquote savior is not successful the fremen's goal like you mentioned is to turn arrakis into a paradise into you know water flowing and things and that's clearly not going to happen with paul at the helm you know it's something that could probably be achieved you know in in the movie when liet kynes is talking about those those machines that were trying to tap into dune's water um but as soon as they learned there was spice you know outer worlds learned there was spice they abandoned that plan you know, you already see the, the the results of imperialism, you know, contradicting or directly criticizing sort of imperialism and by proxy the white savior trope. And, you know, as I'm mentioning this, it's, it's interesting that, yeah, in Lawrence of Arabia, the white savior trope is prevalent. 
and you see the arrows become successful under Lawrence's command, but you see him broken by the end. You know, yeah. he's not he's not the savior. He's a broken man by the end of this. And Paul, you know, I've read the summaries too. He doesn't turn out very well, <laughs> very well in the later <laughs> books. So, <laughs> yeah, no, I, I think I think that's interesting. I never thought about that in in the white savior of like oh like the trope is subverted if the if the if the savior figure is not successful if they are it's not just if he's not successful but if he doesn't bring he doesn't provide the necessary thing that the tribe he's saving wants right he's not not actually saving anyone yeah 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 it's not like an avatar where that's clearly like oh the guy helped the navi exactly what they were trying to achieve but the fremen's goal is so more nuanced than that and the fact that he doesn't understand that you know I would say, I would say, yeah, I think there's a, there's a case to be made that it's not white saviorism, right? Yeah, I guess you could really see that in in Kind's quote back to him, you know, because he's like, yeah, you know, I'll save you, yeah, I'll become emperor, sure, yeah, sure. right? And, <laughs> and, and Kind's is like, are you kidding me? You're a kid <laughs> hiding in a hole. Everybody's trying to come here to kill you. You're an <laughs> idiot, and you know, and. and he turns that around a little bit and he comes back and he says, you know, I know you, I understand you, I know what your dream is, but, you know, that's just, you know, that Deflection. those are the shrooms talking, you know, so like, yes. you know, I, 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 is that a good thing or not? We we don't know, right? Absolutely. Oh, man, that's the thing that's really, I love about the story is that there's so much depth to it, right? Everything, so many things that are explored and then uh it it kind of play out to their natural conclusion and it's done in such an interesting way that um you can really take away a lot of different aspects of it i think that this movie definitely sets up that white savior trope but whether or not it actually fulfills that or subverts it is sort of uh yet to be seen so that's um it's certainly interesting okay let's take a quick break hi my name is denis villeneuve I'm the director of Dune. I deeply love the idea to start a, a sci-fi movie in a library. I think that, that the counterpoint of it is, is kind of beautiful. Why a library? It says a lot of things about Dune's world. There's no computers in this world. In Dune's world, AI has been banned. There's no more artificial intelligence. It's, uh, Dune is about the triumph of the human spirit. I said to my team, it's not an expression of our take on the book. I want Frank Herbert to be on the screen. Every time I had a question or a doubt, I always went back to the book, even as I was shooting, even when I was editing. As we were composing the music, as Hans Zimmer was doing the music, we were always going back to the book, reading the book. I mean, together, I mean, it was like the Bible. It was the the early words. I mean, it was like the way to to stay in contact with with, uh, Frank Herbert. I have deep, deep, deep respect and admiration for him. He's one of my favorite author. And, and I, w- I wanted to make sure if he had seen this film movie, he would have feel that love. For the first time, I think I did this movie for a single audience member, which is me. I uh, read the book 40 years ago. I deeply fall, felt in love with it. I was aware that there are Millions of hardcore fans of the book are there, but uh, I took up on my shoulder to deal with the one that I, the, I was the most afraid of, which is me. Uh, I was a teenager that was a, a totalitarian dreamer. I was arrogant. I was pretentious. I had big dreams. It was kind of frightening for me. And I will say that the truth is, as any movies, is that movies are made of uh, victories and failures. 
Uh, there's some moments in Dune that uh, I knew uh, I, I was not good enough. There's others that I feel that I was very close to the original dream. And the Gum Jabbar scene is definitely one that I knew that at 14 years old, I would have been okay with that. <laughs> Welcome back to Affable Chat. I'm here with Jay and Eli of the Super Bracket Bros. And we're going to start the second half of our episode with cool Easter eggs. Um, so let's start with uh, Jay. So mine is like more of a guess um, because I, I, <laughs> I, but I, 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 it was pointed out to me actually. But uh, Leto Atreides, when he's talking about what he would have rather been instead of the Duke, he does say that I would have rather been a pilot. And you know, after the fact, I was like, Poe Dameron. Oh my gosh. <laughs> you know, like, he, he he did he did in a, in, a, in a different life and so but i i unfortunately i didn't i didn't find any other interesting things but i'll let the others with more interesting facts go ahead but that, oh, was, that, that was that was one fun thing that i noticed yeah. inspired no i think it's so funny because i think I, I saw a headline somewhere that was like dune inspired star wars the movie and now star wars the movie has inspired dune the movie like it's just yeah. it's a cyclical <laughs> oh thing oh my god is it or a boris uh or you know or a warmus you might say oh my god <laughs> <laughs> all right uh eli what you got yeah so uh this one's about the film's composer the famous han zimmer um so denny villeneuve actually approached han zimmer about scoring dune and hey what do you know just as denny villeneuve's favorite book is dune so is han zimmer's <laughs> <laughs> you know what a coincidence um what i found really interesting in this interview with han zimmer was talking about the approach to scoring dune and they wanted to make something that was really alien but similar enough for people to gravitate towards and so hans zimmer when scoring the movie wanted to use a lot of voice voice work because he thought that regardless of culture you know across the stars the first instrument of like people are their voice so mm -hmm. that's why you hear a lot of the different vocal inflections in the movie uh, you know the fremen theme whenever they show up you hear that like loud pitched um women singing you know the sardaukar with their th otherworldly throat singing yeah it, <laughs> oh my amazing gosh. amazing <laughs> but no if, if i think if you um go uh you know the bagpipe you know a a, an instrument played sonically with your voice. literally more than ten thousand years old at this point. <laughs> <laughs> but no, I I just thought that was such a neat tidbit that the 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 you know the crew making this movie were that in tune to it where it's like we want to invent this new language, we want to invent a place that's alien. But remember, this is like our world, just ten thousand years in the future, and you see that the. The voice is still a thing that exists that people use for instrumentation. So I thought uh, I give a lot of Hans Zimmer flack. I think a lot of his soundtracks do a lot of the boing, but this one does have a lot of blas. It does, the, yeah. Hey, but the boing in this one I like a lot, so I'm giving him a pass. <laughs> <laughs> I uh, I agree. Uh, it's, okay, so the first full trailer for the film features a version of Pink Floyd's Eclipse by composer Hans Zimmer, um, and this is actually a nod to Alejandro Jodorowsky um, because he wanted to have Pink Floyd actually score his version of Dune. Uh, <laughs> like just to add another layer of complexity that's so, that's on so top wacky. of the whole thing. <laughs> yes. Um, so, yeah, as we mentioned, Denny Villeneuve, this is his, like, his, he's a huge fan of this uh, book ever since he read it when he was 14. 
And it's actually been his dream to adapt Dune um, ever since then. He's actually like, he said he was, when he was a young boy, he used to like storyboard Dunes, Aww. storyboard Dune with his friends. And he used to like dream about like eventually being able to get there. And he said everything that he's done up to this point has like allowed him the confidence to make this movie that he's always dreamed about making. Um, and he wasn't put off by the unadaptability or anything. He said, basically, like, I, uh, you know, we only live once. You get, you get. I, I have this chance to do this, and I, I've always wanted to do this, so I might as well try. Um, and he says that he feels that he's done uh, his fourteen-year-old self service. He would, his fourteen-year-old self would have said, Aww. "Not bad." Uh, after seeing this movie, so. <laughs> I'm sure. I'm sure that's what he said when Warner Brothers was like, "Hey, do you want to make this?" And he was like. YOLO. <laughs> <laughs> He's like, let's but go. In French, yes. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> he looked um, at all. He looked at all his Dune posters and was like, Yeah, <laughs> yeah. He's like yeah. in his room, like surrounded yeah, by Dune yeah, things. Yeah, it's all Dune. All the Dune books. All He's the got Dune like a little posters. model of a sandworm, like there. <laughs> like, yeah. Hey, hey, Danny, you wanna you wanna film Dune? He looks around his room. Yeah, I think. I yeah, <laughs> yeah. I think. Yeah, I'll do it. <laughs> All right, let's move to our quotable moments, and I have the first one. Well, Jay has the first one. Jay, do you want to preface this with anything, or do you want me to just play it? Yeah, so this takes place pretty early in the movie, um, a conversation between Paul and my favorite character and the best character, Duncan Idaho, um, and and they're going back and forth, getting ready to go to Arrakis, and, and Paul confronts Duncan about something. I saw you lying dead, fallen in battle. Felt like if I had been there, you'd be alive. First off, I'm not gonna die. You're not taking this seriously. <laughs> That's why you want to come with me. Listen, dreams make good stories, but everything important happens when we're awake. Because that's when we make things happen. Who are you? Put on some muscle? I did? No. (laughs) I love this for multiple reasons. One, because it's Duncan Idaho's best line. So best character, best line, best moment in the movie. Um, So, but I I do love it because like it's a lighter moment at the end because I I just, I like the levity in this movie when it does crop up, you know, it feels like, you know, you have a moment to breathe. And so uh, that adds to the pacing of the movie that I really like. Um, But also I think this is really interesting because, you know, this is where the like deterministic themes of the movie kind of start to crop up. And Paul says, I saw this in a vision, but I can change it. If I, if I go with you, I think that you were, you're, you're going to, you know, get got. And Duncan Idaho says, no, like that's not going to happen because I'm Duncan Idaho. And, um, and I, I, in it, I truly, you know, believe that. And I thought maybe Denis was going to do me a solid and not kill Duncan Idaho. In this movie. <laughs> um, but, you know, I, I think this is him, you know, sort of imparting his wisdom, you know, all the, all the other characters are here to impart, you know, their, their viewpoints and you know their lessons onto Paul you know and that's what this the beginning of the movie is really starting to kick in a gear and this is one of those first moments where he says Paul you know you know you can change your fate and Duncan Idaho truly believes that and he abides by that the entire time and 
you know, last but not least, you know, this might be the last time we get to talk about him, but I will forever be thankful for this movie, you know, for later on when we actually get to see him escape from the massacre. And I think that later on happening starts here. It starts with this line saying, you, you, you got to do it yourself, man. Like you have to get yourself out of a hole. And I think, you know, that, that, that comes to fruition later in the movie where Duncan does everything he can for Paul, you know, and, and really is going to impact him going forward, I think. Yeah. I mean, the language of film allows you to allows you to make connections between different moments in the in the movie really, really easily. Right. You see that scene of Duncan, like a flash of that scene of Duncan lying on, in that tunnel surrounded by other by starter cars. And um you know, you see that later on in the movie after it happens, and Paul realizes, oh, this is the moment when he's going to die, and he can't stop it, um, even though he is there. So it's interesting that, um, you know, that vision kind of comes true, but also, like, the way they're able to connect that together is so much easier in a movie than it is in a book. Um, so, yeah, mm-hmm. I, I think this uh, – it's a, it's a great line, and it definitely establishes a lot, right? It shows that Paul can sort of sometimes see the future, and he, like, he believes in these visions, but also that – like Duncan is there to protect him and to help him kind of deal with this situation. You can see, like you mentioned earlier, you see him kind of being uneasy when he's not facing Paul, but when he faces Paul, he's confident and says, obviously that's not going to happen. I'm not going to die. I can't die. I'm Duncan Idaho. And <laughs> so you, you get like his, the sense of his, like he's a protector, he's a mentor, you know, he's, he's uh, putting on this face for Paul to, uh, to uh, make sure that he feels uh, you know, safe and, and confident. Eli. So my uh, my quote takes place shortly after Jay's quote, and Paul is talking to his father, Leto, sort of in the family graveyard, and he's kind of coming up to Leto with some insecurities, and this quote is sort of Leto's answer to those insecurities. I told my father I didn't want this either. I wanted to be a pilot. You never told me that. Your grandfather said, a great man doesn't seek to lead. He's called to it. And he answers. And if your answer is no, you'll still be the only thing I ever needed you to be. My son. So for me, there's a lot to unpack in this quote. It, to me, serves as sort of the thesis of the movie in that great leaders do not seek out leadership. They're sort of called to it. And Paul's, he's called at the leadership on several different fronts, being the Kwisatz Haderach, being the the leader of the Fremen people, as we'll see in part two. You know, leader, you know, being the child of destiny is constantly bombarded at him. And I love the Duke Leto's message to him that if you wanted to turn these down that's okay you'll still be to me what you need to be and that's my son and i i'm really hoping in part two denny uh Villeneuve really leverages into that and has paul realize that all these you know all the universe is forcing me into these positions but i can still be the person i want to be and in the end i still think all he wants is to be leto atreides son 
I think he wants to do his father proud. And as I mentioned, Leto is the only character I feel strongly emotionally attached to. So I love this quote as marking that love for the character, showing that, you know, he is the leader of the house. He is a very serious man who's very driven, but in the end, family is what's important to him. And, you know, it just emphasizes that point. It's really ironic, I think, because Paul's destiny um, and his, like, breeding lead him to becoming a great person, right? And that means that he is destined to lead, whether he's seeking it or not. And Leto's death doesn't allow him to, like, allows, like, well, you know, no, like, removes the option for him to be Leto's son. And he is forced to become that leader. Um, you know, maybe too early, maybe too young, and maybe he's too powerful. I don't know. I think that it's really, it's really a tragedy to see him kind of lose his agency as he becomes more and more aware of his own destiny. Um, and in this moment, it seems like he's able to choose, but ultimately those choices are made for him. Yeah, and I think tragedy is the perfect word to describe the situation. If I was somehow given the manuscript of Dune and could do it my own <laughs> myself, I would have like... I would have like a Paul walk away from the whole thing at the end of the movie. Yeah. I would have some way for him to just escape and be on his own and that would be his solace of walking away from all the universe forcing him into this situation and just being himself. Um, but we obviously Dune isn't about that. So right. Well he <laughs> tra- I mean, his desire to be Leto's son leads him to his quest for revenge, right? Which leads him to his ultimate seat of power. So again, like this thing seems like something that he is able to choose, but ultimately that choice is just recycled for him. And by killing Leto and throwing his house into chaos, they um, create the inevitability of Paul. Yeah, and, and also, like you mentioned, the irony of, of I, I think, I think Leto's message gets lost on Paul in that, hey, if you don't want to answer this, that's fine. You're still my son. But Paul sees himself as Atreides' son, therefore he needs to take revenge, like yeah. you said. And yeah, I, I, it's just one of those lines that I could just spend like, you know, <laughs> an hour dissecting and figuring out how it plays into the large figure. So I, I just really like that quote. And Oscar Isaac's delivery is just oh, perfect. Yeah. I love He's it. He's so mm-hmm. good at this. All right, I got another one for you, Eli. Uh, any preface for this one? So this is uh, taking place after the fall of Atreides. Uh, Jessica and Paul are flying right on their ornithopter and get lost in a sandstorm, and uh, it turns very Star Wars. I'll leave it at that. (laughs) (laughs) The mystery of life isn't a problem to solve, but a reality to experience. A process that cannot be understood by stopping it. We must move with the flow of the process. We must join it. We must flow with it. Yeah, so this scene, um, as they're trying to fly through this this sandstorm and just absolutely failing, you know, Paul is, like, jamming up against the controls. The wings are flying off. It's pretty hopeless. And Paul gets one of his visions talking to a character, um, Jamis, that he ends up killing. But it's this weird, like, like vision of an alternative universe where he doesn't kill Jamis. It's it's very mind bendy kind of way, but it's one of it's 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 very similar to the end of Star Wars: uh, A New Hope when Luke hears the vo- mm. the the voices in his head telling him, 
you know, turn off the navigation equipment, you know, let the force guide you. This is almost the same thing. (laughs) After this vision, Paul just takes off the controls, just holds his seatbelt and just goes with the flow of the wind. And I really love any movie that, that reprimands sort of humans inability to just let, let, uh, let go of their control over the universe sometimes especially for a movie like doom which is all about the flow of the universe and how like unstoppable it is having a character learn to like ease off on the controls and just let nature take its course is very i i find very fascinating and very entertaining so you know i i I almost like did a yeah moment as soon as he like (laughs) turned off turned off the controls and i was just like he gets it he gets it I also want to shout out the actor for Jamis. Um, oh, I just pulled up his name and I can't pronounce it. <laughs> Babs Olusan Mokun. I, I think I just love his voice for this specific scene. It just sounds. It, it sounds so. Uh, he's a Nigerian actor, and so you can tell like English isn't his first language. But it's kind of that thing of like. You know, with the vocal uh, that I mentioned with Hans Zimmer's, you know, it sounds familiar, but there's a slight inflection to it that makes it, um, you know, not, you know, different for my Western ears. Mm. And I just love that delivery. I think it's really great. Yeah, this is a powerful moment for me, too. I mean, what you're saying about, like, letting go and letting nature, like, pull him is such a it's another theme of destiny in a way. Right. Of letting the flow of things happen. Um, which is something that Paul is naturally trying to resist, but ultimately kind of falls victim to. It's a, it's a, uh, it's a really neat moment for sure. Okay, I got a quote for you guys, and this one is right after um, Paul's Gom Jabbar test, and he passes it. The Benny Jesuit confront the Lady Jessica, and then Jessica talks to Paul. What does it mean that I could be the one? You heard. The Bene serve as powerful partners to the great houses. But there's more to it. You steer the politics of the Imperium from the shadows. I know. You don't know everything. For thousands of years, we've been carefully crossing bloodlines to bring forth... One. A mind. Powerful enough to bridge space and time, past and future. Who can help us into a better future? We think he's very close now. Some believe he's here. All part of the plan. It's just another great example of Paul feeling more and more like trapped. Right, he is the result of a like a thousand years of selective breeding, um, to the point where I think actually Lady Jessica's father is the Baron, the Harkonnen Baron, uh, which they don't show in the movie, but that's something that is revealed to her at some point, which is um, kind of insane because they're you know the treaties and Harkonnens are such stark um, enemies. So having this um, you know whole terrible purpose pushed on him he's coming from all angles right at first it was you know his father and the atreides house and then is the Bene Gesserit, but not just the Bene Gesserit's powers but also their um you know long-standing plan to create the one the quizat hazarak so it's um 
yeah, it, it's an amazing little piece of acting from Rebecca Ferguson and <laughs> Timothy Charlemagne, but also just a great way to show the, I don't know, the, the how he penned in he feels. And I also love the contrast with the quote I picked, where Leto is saying, like, you can be whoever you want to be. And Lady Jessica is like, no. <laughs> you got to be not. this guy. <laughs> yeah, you are exactly this. We've spent so much time with all this crossbreeding and bloodlines for you not to be this. And right. I just love that that dueling sides, the duel of fates of, you know, the Kwisatz Haderach versus Paul. Like, who's he going to be? But that's the other thing, too, is that they not included in the court I just played, but Jess, it's revealed right before this that Jessica didn't follow the Jenny Besserit's uh, instructions. He, she was supposed to have only daughters. I believe her daughter was supposed to uh, conceive the Kwisatz Haderach. But she, as a gift to uh, Duke Leto, had a son, which was Paul, and she believes that he is that person, that the one that they have been trying to breed for all this time. And I, it's just really fascinating that, you know, he is the result of some sort of defiance, and he is defiant in his own way, and whether or not he is able to capitalize on that defiance. His father defied his his grandfather and eventually fell into the, um, the role of leader of the House of Trades, and Lady Jessica defied her order and may have accidentally brought in the quiz at Haderach. Um, so in a way, trying to resist your um, your conditioning, resist your destiny, ends up bringing the destiny even closer. Uh, so again, pretty, pretty amazing stuff from this story. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. And I think both of your quotes really come to a head later on in the movie, you know, when we get the last scene and one of the only scenes in the movie between these two characters, between Jessica and Leto, where Leto asks Jessica in one of his, turns out to be his final moments, asks Jessica, like, will you do anything to protect our son? And, you know, Jessica's like, well, of course, I'm, you know, I'm his mom. And he's like, no, as a Bene Gesserit, you know, are you going to do what it takes to protect him? And, you know, it, you know, that that's really where you see the two, you know, philosophies truly directly opposing each other. Um, but, you know, still finding a way, you know, Paul, this one person still containing both of them. Yes. I mean, the, that's the thing is both of those people, right? Both his parents have this duty outside of their own parenthood when that parenthood almost contradicts it, um, which is insane because all because honestly, that should be the thing that you know, preserves their love and their house and whatever they're trying to achieve because they're thinking in generational terms, not thinking of sim simple people. And so the, the idea that, you know, Paul might be a risk or might be a, um, you know, so much hinges on him is another just kind of element of um, terror that these parents uh, have to deal with. Okay, I got one more quote um, also dealing with Paul. This is with Paul and Jessica in one of the, I think it's an orthonocopter? I don't know. It's like one of the dragonfly things um, right after they land on Arrakis. What are they shouting? Listen, Al-Gaib. Voice from the outer world. It's their name for Messiah. That means the Benedictine have been at work here. Landing superstitions. Preparing the way for... These people have waited for centuries for the Lizan Al-Gaib. They see you, they see the signs. You see what they've been told to see? 
again, like this is a, this is a pretty heavy part of the movie. It's sort of implying the Bene Gesserit are incepting religion into Arrakis. They're saying, oh, we have this Messiah that's coming eventually. And it's they seep that in so far in the past or whatever that it's eventually evolved into this Messiah myth today. And Paul fulfills that. I'm not sure if it's because they think he's the quiz at Haderach and that's why like the Messiah works or if it's just the inevitable, um, you know, oppressor class coming to Arrakis to, um, you know, impart their will. But either way, these people have this belief that is somewhat false. It's based in a lie. It's based in a way to control them. And although Paul, again, recognizes it, he absolutely capitalizes it, capitalizes on it when he gets the chance. <laughs> yeah, and I think this is a really good example of like actually showing kind of the Bene Gesserit in action, in yeah. action, right? Because you know before they're a shadowy organization, they're trying to take over the universe. It's very Illuminati, but then you get this example of like they've been planting seeds in a religion, planning for somebody to come and fill this role. Like that's like holy smokes you know like that's next level evil kind of stuff yeah, so it's yeah. like you 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 fully understand exactly where they're at and a little bit more about their their goals well well one thing i love um about the Benny jesuit one of my favorite scenes is that um lady jessica talking to the Benny jesuit as they're leaving the planet and uh you know she's kind of getting reprimanded by the reverend the reverend lady and when she, the reverend uh mother says our plans work on centuries <laughs> that just that just like gave a gave a sense of like this is deep state stuff <laughs> right <laughs> like yes. this is so this is so like insane beyond our comprehension their work like powers at play that we cannot comprehend and this is one of those moves like how long has the Bene Gesserit been on Iraq is slowly sowing these seeds of the Lisan al-Gaib um, you know, the legend of the Kwisatz Haderach, how long have they been doing that? It really, like, it's one of those subtle things that it's like, oh, that that's interesting that the Bene Gesserit do it. And then you start marinating on it. It's like, oh, my God. This is, like, <laughs> this is kind of scary. <laughs> yeah, well, it just adds more scale to the story, right? It's not just dealing with large spaces. It's dealing with large time frames as well. And the characters and organizations at play are have immense power but also are you know carefully laying plans across centuries um which is um so amazing and it, only possible in a novel like this so <laughs> all right i got one more thing i, I gotta talk about because we mentioned we we're going to talk about it earlier and then we'll we'll wrap this up i know you guys you guys are looking tired so <laughs> oh we <laughs> This is what this is what happens when you talk about Dune for too long. Yes. <laughs> yeah, no, I think it's more the more the Dune. Honestly, I mean it's it's nine fifteen here, so I mean we're 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 doing okay. I mean All Eli right. wakes up at like four a.m. So <laughs> he wakes up at four a.m. to watch Lawrence Arabia again. <laughs> I do it every day. That's the only way I can get it in. <laughs> All right, it's time for us to go a little deeper. So I'm going to read this uh, from this little thing I got from IMDb, and I want you guys to, to tell me what you think. Warner Brothers announced that the movie will be streamed on HBO Max just as it hits the theaters. Director Denis Villeneuve 
has voiced his displeasure, claiming that the studio might have just killed the film, and that streaming can produce great content, but not movies of Dune's scope and scale. Warner Brothers' decision means Dune won't have the chance to perform financially in order to be viable, and piracy will ultimately triumph. My team and I devoted more than three years of our lives to make it a unique big screen experience. Our movie's image and sound were meticulously designed to be seen in theaters. Although Venu also expressed concerns that releasing the film on streaming would kill its box office potential and thereby the viability of the proposed sequel, Dune Part 2, 2023, Warner Brothers has given assurances that the sequel will be greenlit as long as the movie performs well on HBO Max. So, Dune is probably the most classic example of a movie that was killed by COVID, right? It was announced long before that it was going to come out. It was this crazy production schedule. It was going to take years and years to make. And then it got delayed and delayed and delayed until it just came out in October of 2021 um, when it was supposed to come out a year earlier, which is, um, you know, I don't know. It may be a tragedy. Who knows? It certainly made it more accessible with HBO Max, but uh, it certainly was not going to be viewed the way that Denis Veneu uh, intended. So what do you guys, how do you guys feel about this? Eli, what do you think? I'm always, I always have shifting opinions about kind of the exclusivity of filmmakers' opinions on viewing films. Yeah. I don't, I don't know if you guys are ever familiar with David Lynch's rant about watching movies on your phones. <laughs> I can imagine. It, yeah, it's just, yeah. It's just, it's so hilarious, but also like, I don't know, for me, I... I can't speak because I'm not a filmmaker, but if I was a filmmaker or, you know, an artist of some kind, I would want my my work to be experienced as as to many people as I can, Mm -hmm. whatever way they feel comfortable with. And obviously, like, oh, I crafted this perfect, you know, experience for this specific medium. But if people, you know, would don't usually go to the theater, the closest one to me is 30 minutes away. You know, it's easier and just you know, more convenient to just have a streaming service available to actually enjoy the movie. I say, go for it. Like, I, I mean, obviously the movie did well, like it did right. extremely well for <laughs> Warner brothers, the green light uh, part two right away. So I have to, I have to believe that, you know, there's many people like me who shelled out the 15 bucks to get HBO max to watch the movie, but there's also still people going to the theater. You know, it's a premium experience that people still want. And I will be going to the theater to watch Dune just cause I want to do that. That sounds really fun. Um, you know, I don't, I don't think I, 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 for me, I'm just happy if, if more people can experience art in their own way, I right. guess is what I'm going to say. Accessibility is important for sure. Yeah. What about you, Jay? Yeah, no, I definitely, I agree with that point that accessibility is super important. And to be honest, before I, I was going to tear into you, but you mentioned that and I, I agree with that point, but you know, like, I don't know, like I, I really do think that if you had the opportunity that like going to the theater is the prime experience for this movie, I alluded to it two hours ago when we started recording. <laughs> um, but that like, I, I do think that's like the, the way to experience this particular movie and a, and a lot of different movies, but 
yeah, I would rather you have watched it on your phone than not have watched it at all. You know, so at, at the end of the day, you know, that is what matters. And I say that as, you know, someone that is privileged enough to be a five minute walk from that same movie theater hey. that Eli mentioned. <laughs> yeah. Uh, and <laughs> a two minute, a two minute drive away from that movie theater, at the, which has five dollar uh, Tuesdays, um, which I, I, I enjoy quite often. And so, you know, I. I, I I also go back and forth a little bit on this. I'd rather you you know watch the movie if if you're gonna watch it at home. You already have HBO Max. You don't want you're not you didn't you didn't redo. You don't really care, but you watch it on your TV screen and you really liked it. Then go watch it in the theater again. You know, like I, I think it's very much worthwhile to see more than once. You know, I think you can. We would, the fact that we've talked about it almost the length of the actual movie so far indicates <laughs> that there's plenty to dissect. Uh, you yes. know, through multiple watchthroughs. So I, you know, I I loved I love this movie, and so I would love for you to see it in theaters. If you can't, that's fine. So so do you? Would you say that seeing it in theaters is the better way to experience the the film? Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. I haven't seen it in theaters, but <laughs> <laughs> I will. I will say. I will say. I think Denny Villeneuve and the whole crew made it for theaters, so I do think that is the way it's intended. Yeah. Um. And you know, I'm not gonna put words in. I, I'm not a filmmaker, so obviously I can't say. Oh yeah, like go watch watch it on anything. You know, I would be. I I feel like I would be also pissed. <laughs> if, I was the, if I spent three years making a movie for the movies uh, for the theater and then had Warner Bros. shunt it to their streaming service, yeah. I feel like that would get peeved by that. So I understand Bill News' frustration. It's just kind of that give and take. Movies are such an interesting media where it's not like a book where I can just read it on a Kindle or you know pull it out of my backpack and just in, enjoy it. I like to get the proper scope. I need to have all this equipment all the sound systems and mm -hmm. you know a high definition tv or going and you know paying twenty dollars at the movie theater you know it's not it's not as accessible an art form and so by that stretch it's not going to be you know for everybody yeah i think that the cinema i mean his intention to have this watched in theaters definitely influenced what i did that's why i went to the theater it's only the second movie i've seen in theaters in two years because of covid and like previously i was going almost every week and I think that the um, the theater experience is certainly very unique, um, but ultimately it's just kind of in this weird space where there was this immediate transition from the theater to streaming and, it, and streaming becoming the more popular way to experience new films. And Dune is kind of on the chopping block on that because before, while they were making this movie, that was never something that they considered happening or maybe that was going to happen over a longer period of time. And then suddenly that became the reality. So, you know, they, uh, they had to adjust quickly. And I think that it is kind of a shame that, you know, not as many people will see this in theaters or won't be as compelled to see it in theaters because I think that is the way that it was intended to be watched. And I think that improved my experience for sure. But I think that for a movie like this where it's, it can be kind of intimidating and inaccessible, anyone like watching it in general i think is um something that i would prefer and i would encourage even um you know even if you can't see it in theaters and i think a lot of people actually have great setups at home you know i i technically watch this on my phone through chromecast um so i you know i i hate the hbo max app i was reminded of why how much i hate it uh while i was watching this but it um it certainly like made it accessible and i have it like not a huge tv but i have a movie going experience while I'm at home. And that's better every day as people get bigger and bigger TVs and as better technology comes out for that. So 
Um, it's not as bad as it once was, I think, is uh, the point. And I don't think as many people watch movies on their phones as <laughs> filmmakers think. <laughs> as David Lynch <laughs> believes. Yes, it's just him. He watched one movie on, on his phone. And he's audience, like, this is bad. Do, do yourself a favor and just look up the rant. Just David okay. Lynch phone rant. It is the funniest thing. Just this boomer. <laughs> Everyone's on their phones. Everyone's on their phones. Watching movies on their phones. <laughs> Okay, uh, at the end of every episode of Apple Chat, which this one is, thank you for sticking with us. It's only been an hour and 10 minutes, um, or two hours and 10 minutes. Um, <laughs> I, we would deliver our ratings, and I will let Jay have his the first go. Jay, what do you rate this movie? So, I like this movie a lot. We all like this movie a lot. It's fairly evident from the conversation. I will give this movie... 390 meters out of 400 meters on a giant sandworm. That is my <laughs> official rating. Excellent. <laughs> what about what about you, Eli? I I will give this movie four shots of Zendaya looking over her shoulder walking in the desert out of five shots of Zendaya looking over her shoulder walking through the desert. Excellent. Excellent stuff. Uh, I give this movie um, a sandworm that's so big it takes you three years to see it all. <laughs> okay uh, uh thank you guys for being here i really appreciate it for sitting with me and talking with about dune uh with me so go ahead plug whatever you want to plug um it, the, the floor is yours so we are super bracket bros me and eli we host a podcast where we take 32 fictional characters. We put them in a tournament against each other to see who will come out on top. Each episode is a different battle in that tournament. So we are uh, almost done with season three right now. And so as we alluded to earlier, we had Paul in this season. Uh, he went up against Sir Nighteye from My Hero Academia as sort of like an example of the kind of crossovers that we'd like to get on Super Bracket Bros. We've had... Benjamin and Joey both on the podcast and we look forward to having them out again once season four comes around you know that's absolutely in our plans uh we have two episodes left to go in season three we have our third place match and we have our finale and so now is a great time to hop on board to catch up on some of the back catalog um and and, and come check us out we'd be more than happy to have you I host another podcast called The Ultimate Sports Mashup, which I can tell you, you know, maybe if you're probably already stopped listening because this is a movie podcast and those realms maybe don't cross over a heck of a lot, but it does for Benjamin. So Benjamin is going to be on Ultimate Sports Mashup very soon. Uh, he's going to come on and talk about uh, one of his uh, one of his favorite teams of all time because we talk about you know historical sports teams going up against each other. And it's a lot of fun. Me and Cam are, are the hosts there, so come check that out as well. If, uh, if you're interested in getting some more affable chat in your life, because we will have uh, Benjamin on as a guest. But um, yeah, those are the two things I've got going on uh, podcast-wise. Yeah, I, I'd like to plug. Uh, I do. I do. I have a, a blog where I occasionally, not for a little while, I will upload movie reviews, and I'm currently writing a movie review for Dune. So awesome! Uh, if you're ever interested in like journals about you know life, illustrations, movie reviews, I I write and draw and do all that stuff on my website, and that's at eliasstokes.com. E L I A H S T O K E S. Uh, I would love if you could uh, come check out some of my stuff. Awesome. Yeah, come check it out and learn about our trip together 
to Moab, Utah, <laughs> where we canoed and kayaked down the Green River. Wow. Check it out. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, we were in our own <laughs> desert environment with That's accessible awful. water and not giant sandworms. <laughs> yeah, we did not have to wear a still suit on our adventure. Um, so maybe, maybe it won't be as exciting <laughs> as going to see Dune in the theater or even watching it on your phone. But you know, um, I had to, I had to give that a shout out because Eli's been writing about it. I had such awesome. a good time. Awesome. So that's really great. Well, thank you guys again for being on and bearing with us uh, as we were through this. As we worked through this uh, very long episode. <laughs> it was, and very it was long Dune. Movie. It was Dune. It had to be epic. Yep, it had, it had to yeah. be. Yeah. Thank you so much for having us on, Joey. As soon as you sent the message, I was like, well, I guess I'm going to see Dune this week. <laughs> so, <laughs> I know. You know. I texted it, you. As soon, like, I was on the way to the theater when I texted you. So I was like, either way, I'm seeing this movie in theaters. I don't care what they say. <laughs> yeah, but I really oh, appreciate man. it. You guys, uh, yeah. you guys are always a pleasure to have on. Um, so let me uh, let me finish up with our plugs real fast. What we're doing next for Affable Chat is Midsummer. We're continuing our Florence Pugh series with our second Florence Pugh movie. Um, you can check that out as soon as we record it and, and, and uh, release it. Uh, you can subscribe to us wherever you get uh, podcasts. We're on iTunes, Spotify, um, uh, Audible, basically everywhere. And if you like this podcast, tell your friends. All you have to say is, have you considered listening to Affable Chat? Uh, you can also reach us on Twitter, Instagram, TikTok. All of those are at Affable Chat. Or you can send us an email if you're old school like David Lynch at affablechat at gmail.com. <laughs> we also have a YouTube channel where there are videos of us. Uh, there you go. It's called Affable Chat. Uh, and Affable Chat is live on Tuesday nights at 7 p.m. Eastern Time on Twitch. Benjamin is streaming on Tuesdays. Right now he's playing Sim City. And it's very, uh, it actually, he's, it's Cringe City because uh, one of his cities is named Cringe City. So it's a <laughs> uh, fun time. Come check it out. 7 p.m. Eastern Time on Twitch.tv slash Affable Chat. Uh, that's all I've got. Uh, thank you guys again, Super Bracket Brothers, the Brothers Super Bracket, for being on <laughs> Affable Chat. Thank you, good sir. And thank you for listening. <laughs>